This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for Jeff Simpson to come back to work day. Jeffrey is back. They've had a cute little baby boy. The crowds are going wild. He's not so little, turns out. No, he was a chunk. That was a big baby. Just like his daddy. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Well, I was a big baby. I was 10-4. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. 10-4. Is that your first words? (laughs) 10-4, mama. That's pretty amazing. Congratulations, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, Your car is, I pull in and I looked over at the Solara, filled with car seats. Well, your, your car, your 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 car is full to the brim. Not with, an infant car seat, yet. No, car seat yet. No, no. the big, no. just the big old kid car seats. Yeah, this is great. Well, congrats. It's good to have you back. Um, we had to replace the board three times because people kept breaking it without you here. <laughs> totally weird. We got a great show today. By the way, we're going to be talking about um, kind of the science of human decision making. So. You can pretty much break down every human activity into algorithms. And a scientist is going to talk to us about the algorithms to live by. It really is one of my – and I know nothing about algorithms, but it is my – I, I do, don't think anyone else does either. But I know a lot about humans, I feel like. Yeah. You, you hear a lot of people using the word algorithms. But this guy full on – knows it like there's and this is one of my favorite interviews because there's just weird things like if you can't make a decision we're going to tell you how to just make a decision and have a high 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 likelihood that it'll be right flip a coin pretty much it's pretty much that it's crazy but it'll also uh, it makes life a little bit easier to live by so brian christian will be joining us algorithms to live by is the name of his book we'll get to that fun of course um some empty news as well News you didn't even know you needed to know. Because when it comes to empty news, the Matt Townsend Show, first on the scene, fifth on the facts. A new movie clip that we can play later. We'll be playing a new movie clip. Excellent. Uh, And we'll have to fill you in on the fact that Terry has watched a pre-trailer trailer. trailer. It was a teaser trailer. Was Was this the announcement of the trailer? Yeah. And he's watched it 500 times. (laughs) Or so. It's unbelievable. Uh, So we'll have to get to that fun and excitement. Um, Plus, you know, just more stuff out of the blue. But first to the headlines, crazy stuff going on. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? A gunman opened fire on nearly two dozen Republican lawmakers practicing for the annual congressional baseball game in Alexandria, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. this morning. Multiple people were reportedly injured, including Majority Whip, uh, Representative Steve Scalisi from uh, Louisiana. What? Local reports allege a rifle was used and shot off more than 50 rounds hitting Scalisi. He was reportedly shot in the hip near second base and then began crawling into the outfield to try to get away from the shooter. Holy cow. Police are calling the incident a multiple shooting. Representative Mo Brooks, who was also on site, told CNN that he was uninjured in the event and that the shooter was taken into custody. Brooks said Representative Brand Winstrup was also on the scene. Uh, 
A helicopter landed at center field and took away the injured. Brooks told CNN at least five people were wounded, including a staffer, a staffer who was shot in the leg and two law enforcement officers. Apparently, people were returning fire with pistols. Holy cow. The what whole, happened to the shooter? Thing. He was uh, apprehended. Good grief. Apparently, when he stopped shooting. Okay. Wow. Just, it's all normal. I mean, you'd think, a, you'd think a tower burning in London would be the head story. Especially, I, I was hearing this morning in that, that incident in London, the code, the building code was the outside of the building needed to be non-flammable. And it was up to code. But the inside, inside eh. it's probably hard to make in a, a living, uh, an apartment building. And there may have been kind of a guideline to, for the residents to wait in their rooms if there was a fire, and yeah. the fire brigade would be there to get, help you. Oh, no. So a lot of them were waiting it out, but we'll it see. got worse. Okay. Yeah, it just got worse. Um, other news, I've been talking about uh, developments with Uber. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I, I trying to, I guess, make it seem relevant. The reason is there's all these companies that are the Uber of this. Mm-hmm. You know, home furnishings, pet food, whatever. But they're following the pattern of business that Uber created to follow to success. Right, right. The problem is they've had a lot of problems. And if people keep doing that, they're going to have the same problems. Oh. So that's why this is important because basically they're, they're trying to set business learn. rules so that companies don't set up basically big houses of sexual harassment. That's, which a, good, is what that's Uber a great, but that's a really yeah. important point. So yesterday, their chief executive officer, Travis Kalanick, told staffers that he plans to take a leave of absence. His parents... Uh, recently died in a boating accident. Mm. So he's taking a leave of absence for, for that. The company will be run by a management committee. He, Upon his return, Uber will strip him of some duties and appoint an independent chair to limit his influence, according to an adv- advanced copy of a report prepared for the board. At a staff meeting Tuesday, the company conveyed the results of a probe conducted by Eric Holder, the former U.S. Attorney General, who Uber hired to look into allegations of harassment, discrimination, and aggressive culture. The 47 recommendations, including creating a board of of an oversight committee, rewriting Uber's cultural values. Their cultural values are stuff like step on people's toes if you have to, push back. Crush them. Work hard, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, reducing alcohol use at work events and prohibiting intimate relationships between employees and their bosses. Well, you know, it just seems like what they need <clears throat> is one serious uh, they need a grown NBA grown-up. Yeah. yeah, and that's usually what that's... happens with these companies. Once they hit a certain point, they bring in someone who can yeah. run a business. They bring in an executive that it's has face- done this before. It's what Facebook did. I Smart. believe Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah, she she's kind bomb. of the grown-up in the room. Totally. Uh, one of the other uh, cultural values they're going to change is they're going to stop serving dinner in the cafeteria. Okay. Because the idea of serving dinner is that you're going to be there to eat it. Right? Well, that's a good point. Yeah, you should be just going home. You should go home and eat dinner. That's yeah, kind of, but so, if you keep serving dinner, everyone just keeps. But then you have to talk to your family. Yeah, yeah. it's this this culture of work yourself to death. Hmm. We're going to stop that. Yeah, that's that's good. That's a kind good start. Right back there. everyone back a notch. Sure. Um, at an all hands meeting for employees yesterday or in the last couple of days about this report, um, an Uber board member named David Bonderman. He did the worst possible thing, responding to a remark by a fellow board member, Ariana Huffington. She was talking about. The data that shows that if one woman is on a board, that it was, quote, much more likely that there would be a second woman on the board. Recently, they've hired four new executive level employees at Uber. Yeah. And if you have people on a, on a board, then you're open to hiring or bringing in more people to yeah, the board. If you, have right? more, if you have females on the board, you're more likely to bring in more females. Right. Yeah. Instead of just having the, the boys club that apparently Uber has been for the last right. few years. So Bonderman then decided this was the perfect time to make a deeply sexist remark. 
by interrupting her, of course, because oh, that's boy. what you do, right? Mm-hmm. You interrupt her, and then you say, actually, what it shows is that it's much more likely to be that there to be more talking. Because, ah. you know, you put two women in a room, they're just going to oh, talk more. Yeah, than nothing men. sexist about that. Statement. Right. So he resigned last night from the board. <laughs> he's, at, he's at a meeting about sexism in the workplace, yeah. and then he demonstrates it. Hey, so. you know, I think if we've said this once, we've said it a dozen times. While you're at a meeting on sexism, yeah. don't do anything sexist. So I Man. just found that deeply funny last night. Yeah. Um, also, uh, finally, getting yourself and your kids to eat more vegetables could be as easy as coming up with a tempting name for the dish. Hmm. So according to psychology researchers at Stanford, people are more likely to chow down on vegetables if they have an indulgent name like sizzling beans as opposed to, you know, beans. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, all, in the, it's all in the advertising. Diners motivated by taste, label, uh, but labels affect how tasty and filling we think food will be, says the study's author. To discover whether they could get people to eat more vegetables simply by changing the name, the author and colleague spent a month and a half serving up vegetables in a university cafeteria. Some dishes got a, a basic label like carrots. Others got a label like twisted citrus glazed carrots. The veggies were always prepared the same way, but researchers nah. found that with indulgent labels, they were by far the best sellers with 25% more people choosing them than the veggies with a basic name. But I think you're still trying to name it as an adult. Like if you were a kid naming beans, you'd say like gas pellets. Do you right? want you'd, your – You'd name it something well, yeah. that makes the kids interested. Not like citrusy <laughs> – Well, no, but you – like, you you know, that's a good point. And they probably did that too. That's just one example they gave in the yeah, article. Okay. But the idea – you change the name, make the name interesting. Okay. And you be – you know. I don't want my beans sizzling. No way. I burn my tongue. Then you can't taste anything. You know, I just call them brown Skittles. Beans. Hmm. Brown Skittles. What would you call a carrot? Superhero food. Mm. Makes your eyes better. You see like Superman. You see, that's what got me. Bugs Bunny used to do that. Mm -hmm. How about the musical fruit beans? No. No. That never worked. Mom won't like that, but the kids will. What would you call like, what would you call, uh, uh, I don't know, celery? Gross. Yeah. Not for human consumption. Rope. Yeah. Water. Water. Basically. Solid rope water. Salary celery? Like you'll get a big salary if you eat this celery? But again, a, an eight-year-old's not like into their salary yet. No. So this is going to need some That's why you put like cheese Whiz on it and then yeah. try to dress it up and cover it up. Peanut really. butter, cheese yeah. Whiz. Oh, wow. Holy cow. We got to, we, I mean, I believe it. It's just you got to have to turn your head into about a five year old's head to make this interesting. Right. Green Snickers. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) You're going to really try to keep this going. I'm going to keep it, I'm going to base it in candy because my kids will do that. All right. Maybe they can call them Boston Baked Beans. Hmm. Did that ever? Did that name ever turn you on to go eat those? Well, isn't that a candy too? It is. But it, did you? How many people like go? How many kids do you know? They're like, I'll have one of those hardened shell peanuts. It's like those leftover candy I at love the bottom them to of death. the Halloween bag. I could never get my kids to eat them. Um, exactly. So, Jeffrey, you've got to give us an update on your family, your children. How's the baby? What'd you finally name him? Is did Leroy stick? Is that the name? No. Okay. No, and it's probably a name you haven't heard before. Oh, boy. Here and one, I'm afraid that if I say it, you're probably going to bring it up every day on the show. No, we won't. Okay. 
So the name is Stas. No, really? Stas. <laughs> How do you spell Stas? See, now this is open for debate because everybody you ask is going to give you a different answer. So we just spelled it the way we wanted to. S-T-A-U-E-S-S-E. Stas. S-T-O-S-S. That was embarrassing. S-T-A-S. Stas. It's great. Very masculine. So it's actually a uh, – it's short for Stanislav, which we were not going to name our child Stanislav. How did Stanislav even get in the discussion? No, Stas did. It. Stas oh, okay. did. I knew, so, I knew a guy named Stas. Oh, cool. And he was pretty cool. And uh, Stanislav means to achieve glory or fame. Wow. You guys thought through this. Well, we didn't go – we didn't start with the meaning. We started with the cool, hip version of the name. Stas. Yeah. What's his middle name? Leroy. No. Uh, it's actually Jeffrey. And I'm not a big fan of naming oh, yeah. children after me, but I figured there's a difference between naming a child uh, – giving them your first name as their first name mm-hmm. versus giving, giving them your first name as their middle name. First name totally kind of seems a little hoity-toity. No, I, agree. I agree. And middle yeah. name just makes it seem like you have a special bond. Yeah, or you're into genealogy. <laughs> that I named my first boy after me, but I never wanted his first name to be Matt because I thought that would be torture. Yeah. So um, you might be interested to know that this, so this is our third child. First one uh, where my wife was not induced. So she didn't really have a lot to compare no. the, the I you know, labor went, pains with. It went pretty fast, apparently. Yes. So everything we read in this book that she made me read um, just <laughs> screamed that she wasn't ready to go. But she was in she was excruciating pain. Yeah. Uh, her water broke, so we were, we called up her sister and said, "Okay, well, it, we'll don't rush, but come on over. We're going to head to the hospital." And then the next contraction, she's like, "We got to leave now." Oh, oh! So please don't uh, call social services. But we left the house as my sister in law was on the way. She lives a couple miles away. She's fine. And uh, you know, my wife, she bless her, she made it to the lobby. Started clenching onto me. Oh, no. And I was about six feet away from the button that you press to, so the nurses will let you in. And I was like, just, we got to go about five five more feet. Five more feet. Come on, you can do it. She says, I can't make it. And she clenched onto me. And uh, what? they heard her screaming. So yeah. they came out with a wheelchair. Um, before she could sit down, they noticed that the baby's head was coming out. Oh, my. They sat her down <laughs> and uh, pulled the baby out. Wow. And, you know, apparently this is kind of a big thing. So they actually knew what to do based on a similar experience that happened a week before. So we were kind of the beneficiaries of of their lack of preparation the week before. By the way, I just Googled the name Stoss. Yes. Do you know what it means? I just told you. Hospital lobby. Oh. (laughs) Hospital lobby. And, you know, not just in our situation, this is actually a problem that's been happening quite a bit with uh, babies being born in the lobby. So much so that, uh, you know, there's a new movie coming out and we have a little clip of that right now. I think it's called Babies in a Lobby. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floors. Step aside, nurse. I'll handle this. Now, someone give me a diaper. 
Step. Wow. That so sounds great. The premise of the movie is Samuel L. Jackson plays this uh, hospital janitor who is just sick and tired of babies being born in his lobby that he worked so hard to keep sick clean. Sick and tired. Yeah, now not he's got to clean it up again. Not only that, but he delivers the babies. Does he really? Yeah. That's great. And then demands a diaper to slap on the baby. Um, so Samuel L. Jackson is sick and tired. How do you say that? I think he said he, he has had it. Oh, he's had it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stas. Uh, Stas in Slavic, I don't know if you know this, means military glory. Yeah. So your son is going to be in the military. No. Uh, in Slovenia, Slovakia. <laughs> if he doesn't clean his room, that's where he's headed. That's great news, though. Boy, you are lucky. What if this? Had, what if the baby had been delivered in your car? You would have been one of those stories we all laugh about. We just barely bought that car, too. I know. Yeah. Well, congratulations and Stoss, welcome to the world. That he should have been named Stat. <laughs> like right, like get here quickly. And he did. And he did. How cool is that? Well, and everyone's healthy. Everyone's okay. <sighs> Dodged another bullet there. Congratulations to the Simpson clan. Bart, Homer, everybody. And Stoss. Uh, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about The Algorithms to Live By, a book by Brian Christian, The Computer Science of Human Decision Making. Stick with us. You know, every day we are faced with problems which need to be uh, solved by decision-making, right? We've got to make some decisions. But what if all the answers we needed about any issue, relationships, job advice, problems with the in-laws, were all sitting in your computer? Although this might seem strange, computers do have a lot to teach us about our decision procedures. They use algorithms, right, to, to consistently make uh, decisions and, uh, and uh, quickly make decisions. But as humans, we struggle with it a, a lot more, but maybe we don't need to. Joining us to, today to talk about the power of the algorithm is Brian Christian. He is a co-author of the book Algorithms to Live by the Computer Science of Decisions. He's also the author uh, of the book The Most Human Human, and uh, we're honored to have you with us here today. Brian, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, it's such an interesting topic because we hear about algorithms all the time. We hear about Facebook is adjusting their algorithm or any of these tech companies are, are using algorithms to search through all of the data. Just for myself and others that might not quite fully understand what an algorithm is, educate us. What is an algorithm sure. and, and, and how does it work? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's an intimidatingly long word for some people, but uh, the concept underlying it is very straightforward. So an algorithm is really just a, a series of steps that a computer follows to uh, take an action or come to a decision. So, uh, you know, computers use algorithms for sorting and searching and, you know, showing you your email and all of these things. But you know, you are yourself following an algorithm when you take any kind of step-by-step -step process to uh, arrive at a conclusion or make a decision. Hmm. So even something like 
baking, you know, if you're, if you're baking bread following a recipe that says, you know, first measure the flour, then put it in the mixing bowl, then preheat the oven, you are in effect following an algorithm. And uh. so that's, that's one of the basic messages of the book is there's, there's kind of a, a deep connection between the way that humans uh, approach our lives and some of the, the basic underlying concepts of computer science and identifying that, that parallel I think can can really open the door to a lot of insights about our own lives. And I, I that's what I loved about it because it seems like there, there's many of us that struggle making a decision, or we think about it and we think about it, and it it then we end up making a decision that doesn't feel like it was so right. But it, as I was reading mm-hmm. through a lot of uh, the material and your book, I've I've noticed that honestly. It's it really is a process that if if we would just pay attention to the process we're using, um, we might be able to increase our effectiveness of decision making, you know, but by a lot. I think that's exactly right. And um, I think, you know, there are payoffs at a number of different levels, um, you know, thinking about kind of the optimal decision making strategy can, you know, in the most basic sense, just increase our chance of getting a, a successful outcome. But it can also give us, uh, I would say, peace of mind. You know, there are many cases in computer science where a certain domain of problems uh, are just hard. They're just kind of certifiably hard. And so even following the very best procedure, uh, you still have a certain probability of, of error or probability of failure. And I think this is something that, you know, whenever something uh, in a human decision goes awry or we don't get the result we want. It can be really tempting to replay the decision-making process in our mind and sort of agonize over where did we go wrong. And in many cases, I think we, we can get some solace or some consolation from computer science um, because there's a sense in which if you know that you've been following the optimal decision-making procedure um, and you know that it just is going to fail with some probability then even if you don't get the outcome you want, you can take comfort in knowing that you followed the right approach. Hmm, right. Yeah, you, and you went, around, you went about it in the, the most effective way. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there, I guess there still could be an anomaly, right? There still can be a weird, you know, outlier that might change this data set. But t- talk to me about – you give a wonderful example in uh, your Huffington Post article – about just shopping for an apartment in San Francisco mm-hmm. because it's hard to find an apartment yeah. but there and there's and when you finally get the apartment because of shortages and zoning laws and limiting of new construction you, you only have a few minutes to make the decision to talk about how how you could see algorithms helping with that process yeah absolutely so yeah, both my uh, collaborator Tom Griffiths and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is notorious for having uh, a, a shortage of real estate. And so, you know, exactly as you described, when you go to an open house, for example, for an apartment, um, you know, people people are are literally kind of crowding each other out to to hand a deposit check to the landlord first. Um, and so you you face a situation in which you need to make an, an on-the-spot commitment. Um, as soon as you walk into an apartment, you have to decide, do I want to go for this? In which case, 
you don't have the opportunity to know what other apartments might have been out there and if something better might have been out there because you just have to commit on the spot. Um, on the other hand, if you decide that you don't want to commit your, your deposit right on the spot, then you walk away and you lose the ability to change your mind and come back. Mm. And so this creates a particular kind of decision dilemma. Um, I think we are, we're used to the idea that making a, an informed, rational choice involves kind of surveying a bunch of different options, uh, reflecting on the one that we like the best, and then choosing that. But notice that here we don't have the luxury of being able to uh, explore a bunch of different options before making the choice. We actually have to make these decisions at each step of the way. Um, do I take the option in front of me or do I continue uh, gathering more information, but I, but I lose the option in front of me? Yeah. And so I think this is a very identifiable type of human uh, predicament um, where you don't really know what else might be out there. You don't know whether you're, you're walking away from a potentially good thing. And, you know, we have these idioms like a bird in hand is worth two in the bushes. <laughs> right, right. Um, but they don't really give us the level of precision that's actually useful when we face these problems. So what's really wonderful about looking at the mathematics here is that there's a very clean answer to what seems like this paradoxical problem. And the answer happens to be 37%. <laughs> so in particular, uh, if you want the, the very best chance of getting the very best apartment, uh, then you should spend the first 37% of your search. So if you've given yourself a month to find a new place, that would be the first 11 days. So you spend the first 37% of your time uh, just non-committally exploring your options. And then after that point, be prepared to commit immediately to the first place you see that's better than what you saw in that first 37%. Wow. Um, and so this is not merely not merely an intuitively satisfying uh, balance between looking and leaping. This is, uh, this is actually the, the certified optimal result. So you are going to spend, if, if you were looking for a month, you're going to give it one month, you would spend 11 days non-committally looking, 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 turning stuff down, looking at the next place, looking at the next place, mm -hmm. and then commit after the 11th day to commit quickly, you know, uh, definitively on the next best option that comes up after day 11. And statistically, That's right. That's right. You, will have, you will have hit kind of an ideal. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's uh, this is a domain that's known as optimal stopping. Um, and in any optimal stopping problem, you are trying to basically balance two different risks. You know, there's the risk that you may see the best option and uh, pass it by because you think there's something even better out there. Um, and there's another kind of complementary risk, which is that you stop too soon and you take something that seems really good when, in fact, there is something better out there. Hmm. And computer science or understanding the mathematics can, can't, you know, entirely remove these intrinsic uh, risks or these intrinsic uh, difficulties. But what they can do is give you, as I said, that the, the optimal way to uh, balance those trade-offs and, and make as good of a decision as you can. And, and, I mean, that's a basic – that's just a basic algorithm. I guess it would work – there's places, I guess, it wouldn't work if, mm -hmm. if if you don't need the stopping 
um, uh, what was the term you used? The stopping, this optimal stopping. Optimal stopping. Um, mm-hmm. if, if, if it doesn't fit that need for that algorithm, then you'd need another algorithm. That's exactly right. And so when, one of the things that we try to do in the book is we chart, uh, in this case, 12 different of these canonical uh, problem domains. And we try to give you basically an intuition of, okay, what, what resembles an optimal stopping problem? What resembles, for example, an explore-exploit problem, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, so optimal stopping problems um, are ones that have this form of there's a sequence of things, and at each point in the sequence you have to kind of make a commitment. So oh. real estate is of this type, you know, not just leasing an apartment, but if you're, if you're buying a house, you know, there's an open house, and then they take offers the next week. And you have to make a similar decision of, is there something better out there? Should I not make an offer and, and keep going? Um, driving, any, any decision involving the car uh, takes this form. You know, you're, you're driving down the highway and you see a, a rest stop and you think to yourself, well, should I pull in there or should I keep going? And maybe the, the next one in a couple miles is going to be nicer or something like that. So that's an optimal stopping huh. problem. Dating? Uh, when you're looking for a parking space. And dating, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So many people have uh, have argued that uh, you could think of romance as an optimal stopping problem, where you're in a relationship and you get to a certain point and you have to decide, you know, do do I commit to this person, forsaking all others, or do I kind of end the relationship and 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 look for someone else that might be a better match? But you you of course don't know whether that person is out there or not. Yeah. And so. Uh, we actually, in the book, we tell the story of several noted uh, scientists who apply the 37% <laughs> principle to their dating life with, um, I think it's fair to say, with mixed <laughs> results. <laughs> Do they? Um, yeah. Because it, it, it seems like an algorithm may not work where the heart should work, except many mm-hmm. people are so in the heart that they can't make a decision either. So it's almost like you might need yeah. a mix. I think that is exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, there, there are many ways in which uh, reality doesn't conform precisely to the tidy constraints of a mathematical problem. So, for example, we, we give the example of the Carnegie Mellon professor of operations research named Michael Trick, who, as a graduate student, was dating this woman and was kind of trying to decide whether he, he felt like he wanted to commit. Uh, and... He thought to himself, oh, well, you know, dating is basically like an optimal stopping problem. So I should just <laughs> compute 37 percent of, uh, you know, my you know, dating uh, time in my life. And so he said, well, OK, I'm, I'm open to meeting a partner from, let's say, age 18 to 40. So 37 percent of that would give you age 26.1. <laughs> and it just happened to be his age at the time. And so he proposed on the spot, because he knew exactly what oh, there you the algorithm go. told him to do. Um, but it backfires because she uh, she turned him down. Yeah. Cause so that's, uh, you know, that's she, one of the ways in which life does not always perfectly resemble uh, the problem. So true. She understood. She realized that he had made the decision by his calculus. Um, great. Uh, we'll take a break. We're speaking with Brian Christian, and uh, he's, he's the author of of Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Fascinating, fascinating take on uh, on how to, how to make some of the toughest decisions in our lives. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking with Brian Christian, author of the book Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Brian is also the author of uh, the book The Most Human Human, which was named Wall Street Journal's bestseller and the New York favorite New Yorker's favorite book of the year. He co-authored with Tom Griffiths this last book, Algorithms to Live By, a number one Audible bestseller, by the way. And uh, I love it because it's such a different approach to decision making. And so many people have a harder time making decisions, it seems like today, just because of the overwhelming data we have. We have so much information, and yet we've got to make decisions. And computers do it. They make the decisions just by running the algorithm. And Brian teaches us, that well, there's many, many different algorithms that we can use to make some of the tougher decisions in our lives. Brian, thanks again for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. This is, uh, it's it's a fun take, and it's, it's interesting to know it, it's not perfect, right? But but I guess if we're going to make a decision on how long we should circle the parking lot before we finally just pick a stall, because we, you know, there might be a better one down the row. Um, if you're if you're if you're caught up in that, maybe just do the thirty-seven percent rule. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there um, there's a surprisingly vast mathematical literature on uh, optimal parking strategies. So. We uh, we devote a whole section to that in the book. Do you? Um, but you know, the, <laughs> that's great. For anyone who's who's been in that situation of uh, trying to decide whether you just commit to the space in front of you or you try to press on in the hopes that there's something better out there, um, we we actually include a little uh, chart that you can print out and stick on your dashboard. <laughs> that's that tells great. You, uh, exactly to work it through. Work it through. It's so funny because I, I mean, a lot. Of, I didn't know people were having these problems, but. Um, I, I guess we all have our own system, don't we? And I guess that our own system mm-hmm. is, is I guess, our algorithm. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we have these kind of heuristics or we have these, um, you know, idioms yeah. that guide us in, in different uh, scenarios. Um, but we don't often subject them to the kind of rigor and scrutiny that, mm. you know, the, the optimal strategies in computer science have been subjected to. And so that's one of the, that's one of the great things about, you know, e- examining these links between computer science and human decision-making, is that uh, when we draw results from the computer science literature, um, it is, you know, battle-tested. It, it is... Uh, proven mathematically to be the the best possible strategy for that situation. And so um, it it comes with guarantees that uh, that typical self-help advice uh, doesn't offer. And and, and two, and I guess uh, a caveat that it's not always perfect, and yet so, but yet even when it's not perfect, there's still other algorithms we can use to um, help you deal with the next problem. Um, you you, you yeah. said you said there's about 32. Did you say different uh, algorithms in the book that you talk about? That that sounds about right. I'm not sure. To be honest, I'm not sure the exact number, but that that sounds about right. We have 12 different chapters that kind of break down the, the major categories of problems. So we were just talking about optimal stopping problems. Um, another category that we get into after that is what are called explore-exploit problems, and I think these are very relevant to, to human life as well. Um, we often have this situation where we need to make a choice between uh, our favorite thing and trying something new. 
So going out to eat, you know, do you, do you order your favorite dish or do you try a dish you've never tried before? Uh, do you go with your closest friend or do you reach out to someone who you'd like to get to know better? Hmm. Um, anytime you play music, you know, do you play a beloved classic album that you know and love or do you, do you turn on the radio and try to discover something new? So we have, you know, again, as we were talking earlier, we have these words of wisdom that we go by, whether it's, you know, uh, make new friends, but keep the old one is silver, the other gold. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are these sayings and so forth that, that offer us a little bit of insight into these problems. But in fact, there's a vast computer science literature on how to make exactly these kinds of trade-offs. So computer scientists know it as the explore-exploit trade-off. So anytime you're in a situation where you're not sure whether to try something new and, and branch out or just stick to something that, uh, you know, you can trust and know and love, uh, you are in an explore-exploit problem. And so computer science gives us a couple strategies and, and a couple basic principles uh, that can guide, give us some guidance in, in situations like that. What, what, are, what are one of the strategies or two of them? Yeah, well, the, the basic idea in any explore-exploit problem, the, the key thing uh, is how long uh, you have to uh, enjoy the thing that you're, that you're choosing. So mm. to give you a concrete example, um, if you just move to a new city um, and you're going to be there for many years, uh, well, the more time you have, the more exploratory you should be. So um, even if you find a restaurant that you really love on, on the first night in town, you should nonetheless keep, keep trying new things because uh, the odds of discovering something new that's better than the place you already like are pretty good because you don't know that town very well yet. Um, and what's more, if you do find a place that you like even better, you've got years to keep going back and enjoy it. Um, on the other hand, if you're just about to move out of town, uh, then you should be in much more of an exploit-based uh, uh, mind frame. And the, the word has negative connotations in English, but to a computer scientist, uh, exploit just means leverage the information that you already have rather yeah. than getting more. So if you're about to move out of town, then uh, there's, there's not so much use trying a brand-new restaurant that just opened up because the odds are that it's not going to be better than your favorite place that you already know about because you know that town pretty well. And even if it is, you've only got a couple nights left to enjoy it. And That's so great. I think that, intui- that intuition that we should be more exploratory the more time we have um, really has given me uh, some perspective on, on how to think about these types of problems. And it, it also helps us make sense of kind of the arc of a human life. You know, we think of children as extremely curious and exploratory and, you know, they're always interested in new things. Uh, And we think about older adults as being kind of set in their ways and resistant to uh, new ideas and and kind of fixed in the things that they like. Yeah. And looking at the mathematics here uh, shows us that, in fact, both of these are, are pretty reasonable ways to behave relative to how much time you have uh, in your life. so And it's interesting I how many... The t- mathematics... Oh, yeah. go ahead. 
No, it just it gives us a way of kind of making sense of the arc of a human life, which yeah. I think is really sort of lovely. And we don't think it's we don't like I, I whether I explore or exploit, it is dependent on time. I mean, and and there's other conditions. Mm-hmm. So I guess the benefit of thinking about it kind of through the algorithm or in kind of the system is there's variables at play here. And once you start to know the variables, you it seems like you actually start asking smarter questions and have a deeper, smarter evaluation of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, the, the goal is not necessarily for people to come away from this, uh, you know, living their life strictly by the numbers, but but rather to give people kind of a vocabulary and, and a framework for thinking about things. Hmm. So, for example, um, you know, my uh, my fiancé and I uh, were looking at, uh, you know, houses, you know, to live together. And um, when we realized that we were going to be kind of leaving the area that we were in, uh, we realized, oh, you know, from an explore-exploit perspective, we we're kind of near the end of this one interval of time. And so we should, in general, spend that time, you know, with some of our closest friends who live in that area and going to some of our favorite restaurants from that area. And then when we get to this new area, we should be very exploratory hmm. and um, and really open to trying new things, even if there are things we already know and like. And so, um, you know, here's a here's a way of thinking that doesn't, look like a kind of robotic Spock-like approach to life. Um, but these, these general insights and these principles are being derived uh, from computer science. So I think it's really nice to identify those kind of underlying patterns in your life and, and see places to apply some of these ideas. Yeah. And, and I guess, too, the logic, there's because there's so much logic applied. And it's also interesting to think that is it possible that I could take 12 different decision making, you know, um, approaches to, and and that might eliminate, or not eliminate, but support and strengthen 95% of my decision-making. I mean, to me, that's mm-hmm. exciting right. to think that, it, you know, there might be just be 12 different ways to look at it, exploit or explore, um, that, I don't know, it, to me, I think it's a fascinating, completely different view for me. We've only got about another minute or so. So help me understand, Brian, if, if so other than getting the book, Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions, what, what, else, what else can we do uh, as humans in our decision making that is just something that is intuitively done by a programmer who's programming a computer? Um, I think... One of my favorite examples for this is, uh, you know, we all have uh, kind of a, a messy desk, for example, for me in my office, you know, with a, with a pile of papers on it. Um, and uh, we, we kind of berate ourselves for, you know, why don't we get more organized? And there are a couple interesting insights that come out of computer science um, that may, may cause us to let ourselves off the hook. Mm. So, for example, um, if getting organized will take you more time than uh, you will save by being organized, then you just should allow yourself to be messy. Um, so that's an idea that comes out of what's called the search sort trade-off. Um, and secondly, there's this wonderful result from uh, an area of computer science called caching that shows that uh, the very best policy you should have uh, is to put the 
the most recent thing that you touched uh, as close to hand as possible. And so uh, in, in summarized terms, that means just throw your papers in a big pile, and whenever you're done using something, put it on the top of the pile. Hmm. And so here's a case where um, computer science validates what people are doing by default. Um, and the difference is that when we do it, we feel bad about it, but in fact, we, we shouldn't. Uh, so whenever we, we tell ourselves, you know, we really need to get organized, yeah. um, there's a surprising message from computer science that says that you're actually more organized than, than you may realize. Isn't that amazing? And just keep it on the pile. Just put it on the pile. It, it's, exactly. If it's on the top exactly. of the pile, you know it's what you did last. Oh, I love it. Exactly. That's good stuff. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your great work and research and insight. Uh, I know you're going to help a lot of people, uh, a lot of our listeners on the show. The book, again, is Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner play ball play ball you know isn't it a great idea to know as much as you can know about yourself and your relationships and how you think i mean when it comes down to it it's about you understanding you so how well do you understand your decision making how well do you understand uh, your social skills? Do you feel like you are on top of the game? I mean, time and time again, I have people come into my office, and as we as we sit down, their marriage is suffering. It's been suffering for 20 years. They've known it's been suffering for 20 years, and yet we haven't – we haven't – we don't even know why. We don't know why. But one of the things that I'm finding more and more is the why is usually not what we ever discuss, right? So what we discuss is the money, the sex, the kids, the, you know, the trust in the relationship. But deeper down, there tends to be bigger issues. And I I usually have found that there's three basic uh, drivers for the problems of our relationships. Those three drivers are, do you feel safe deep down? With your partner, do you feel lovable? Do you feel like they actually love you and care for you and will be there to love you long term? And do you feel capable? So safe, lovable, and capable tend to be what I call the the real triggers that uh, that upset our lives. And yet we fight about everything else. We fight. I have a couple that came in. They're fighting about their wedding date when they're going to get married. And um, because he keeps putting it off, she keeps wanting it earlier. And in reality, the wedding date is not the issue. (laughs) One of them doesn't feel capable of being married because he can't provide yet. He he doesn't. He's not out of school. It's a capable issue. And the other doesn't feel lovable because her fiance isn't making it a priority to get married. So just like with the algorithms we were talking about earlier, there's always a deeper thing going on. And if we want to cut through the the you know, the difficult stuff and get to the solutions faster, get down to those deeper issues. Lovable, capable, safe. A little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. We'll be back.
Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Flag Day. Today's the day honors uh, from June 14th, 1777, the resolution from the Second Continental Congress, which called for an official United States flag. The resolution called for the flag to be the 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars in uh, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. Flag day. So get your flags out there. Uh, joining us, by the way, great news. It's it's International Bath Day, and what better way to celebrate it than having Jeffrey Liam Simpson back with us. A little song from Jeff <laughs> in his bath time. Jeff's back. Uh, had a cute little baby boy in an emergent situation in the lobby of, uh, of the hospital. Yes. Cute little Stoss. And luckily, I mean, I was seconds away from having to deliver it myself. Which, honestly, everybody is grateful you did not have to go there. Oh, yeah. Because that would have been traumatic and you probably would be gone for a month. (laughs) Plus all the therapy and everything after that. Uh, International Bath Day, by the way, um, it's, it's it's a legend that on June 14th, around 260 B.C., the Greek mathematician, scientist, and scholar Archimedes discovered uh, while taking a bath that an object's volume could be accurately measured by being submerged in water. I thought you were going to say that's when they figured out, like, oh, we can clean our bodies? Oh, no. That is apparently where Archimedes leapt out of the bathtub yelling, Eureka, Eureka! He struck gold in the bathtub? (laughs) No. That's the first time, I guess, they used the word Eureka, Eureka to, to signify a discovery. You know? Like, what a great thing. He creates some incredible, you know, scientific theory while in the bathtub, and the rest of us just soak. Are you going to take a bath today? No. I'm not a – I don't I don't think I've taken a bath for years. <laughs> what was the year on that? Uh, around 260 B.C. The article I was reading showed the math on how they figured that out. Really? Apparently Archimedes left some record that it was on – some day of the week, it was so many days after some celebration oh, or something. Yeah. So then they, because our calendar that we used yeah. wasn't in, in effect no. at that point. So they basically applied our calendar and went back yeah. and figured out it was on this date. And then when they figured it out and they figured out the date, somebody jumps out of the tub, says, Eureka, Eureka, right. we figured out the date. I think that's how that goes. So he figured out things float. Yeah. And displacement of water. Other people use, you know, whatever math that didn't exist at that point to figure right. out what day. Because, you know, we're bored. That's right. Others just uh, get their toes stuck in the tub. Some we've read about put, um, what's that, peanut, what's that nut? Nutella. Nutella, Nutella in their tub. In yeah. mm-hmm. if Some I found, leave a gator in their tub. Right. If I found something floating in the tub, Eureka is probably the last thing I would say. <laughs> probably get out of there as quickly Ugh, as possible. Yuck. This is true. So much to talk about today. Uh, We're going to um, be getting into uh, giving you a chance to figure out what life has taught you. We're going to go through a little process to figure out, because life is always the great teacher. Mm. 
what has we, life we, taught we, you? We learn so much, but we don't necessarily realize what yeah. we're learning in the moment. So how to capture the learning, we'll have a guest that will walk us through a process of learning, reviewing your life, identifying, you know, the lessons learned. Mm. What have you learned? Well, I've learned today, for example, uh, if you're about to have a baby and you're a week overdue, don't dilly-dally. Just camp out at the hospital. Get to the hospital, because no. if not, you could be delivering in the lobby. Actually, in Hold, between doors. Holding on to the gumball machine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you my Kiefer Sutherland thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just I also, whispered. I also learned that I did not know this. Stas is, means that you're a warrior uh, soon to have... To become or achieve glory greatness. or fame. Yeah. Stas. Uh, middle name Jeffrey. Jeffrey stands for dad. Dad <laughs> stands for anxious man cleaning up in the lobby, <laughs> panicking in the lobby. I think, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So we got a lot to talk about as far as that goes. Also, headlines. We'll be getting into the empty news headlines, including an incredible bear story. Uh, you're not going to want to miss the bear story. If you love music as I do, um, you will want to hear the bear story and we'll get to that in just a few minutes if you're really if you're if you're all obedient and you just sit quiet if you're good if you're good we'll get to the bear story in a few minutes but uh there's a lot of talking it's just not going to happen let's just say it's a breaking and entering that turns into a musical it's amazing but first to the headlines with terry south terry What's going on around the country? House of Representatives Majority Whip Steve Scalise was among those injured when a gunman opened fire in Alexandria, Virginia this morning, according to multiple reports. The, sh- the shooting took place during a practice for the GOP congressional baseball team. How, do you, how good do you think that team is, Matt? I'm going to bet not very good. Congressional baseball. Two Capitol Hill—well, they were practicing trying to get better, right? Yeah. Two Capitol Hill police agents were also reportedly shot. The shooter, who is in police custody, has been taken to a hospital, according to CNN. Scalise's office uh, released a statement saying that he is undergoing surgery and in stable condition. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, who was at the practice, recounted the scene to ABC News. I wanted to get to Steve laying out there on the field, but while there were bullets flying overhead, he goes, I couldn't, he said, adding that the shooting went on for 10 minutes at least. Are you serious? He just sat there just spraying Yeah, they the said he down. kept loading and reloading his gun, man. And some sort of, uh, as they, one, one report from a, a senator I saw on the AP was, he had a, some sort of rifle and a lot of bullets. So, kind of scary. Crazy. Just trying to play some Boy, baseball. One, so one person was shot? Uh, five, injured. Oh, my word. That's crazy. The, the, the representative, the a way, couple of police, and some aides apparently were. What, were, cuts, were, why, were why were they practicing baseball in the middle of the day? It's not in the morning. This happened like at, between like 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning. I know. Like, hello? What? When, when uh, are you supposed to do it? Aren't you at work then? No, not yet. They didn't get to get to the Capitol till like nine or ten. We're the only ones that work this early. Yeah. Oh, oh! I thought everyone was no. up this early. No, no, no. no well, no. who's listening to us then? The people getting ready to go. And oh, okay. On, the, on, way on the way to go play ball. Another news: A manhunt underway for two inmates accused of killing two guards in Georgia on a prison bus Tuesday morning. A reward of sixty thousand dollars being offered for information leading to the arrest of the fugitives: forty-three-year-old Donnie Russell Rowe and twenty-four-year-old. Ricky Dubois, Georgia Bureau of Investigation spokespeople say the amount is likely to increase. My biggest worry is that they're going to kill somebody else, says the county sheriff. Georgia Governor Nathan Deal said he is committed to using every state resource necessary to capture these men. They overpowered the guards, 
took their weapons, shot them. The bus had 33 prisoners on board. I'm not sure what happened to the rest of the prisoners. Holy cow. Usually it's like prison break. Everyone right. takes off. They're all just sitting sit. still, yeah. One of the two inmates then uh, killed, killed the guards. We're still desperately looking for these individuals. They're armed with the guns they took from the police and are dangerous. So they're out there still. Well, I guess you don't want to run and then be complicit in a double homicide. Yeah. The minute you run off the bus, you're... It's just adding more you're in the to, game. to the chaos. Um, uh, another story. The NYPD looking for two men in connection with an alleged assault by avocado oh, at a yeah. deli near Yankee Stadium last month. Police say before 5 a.m. on May 29th, the two men started throwing avocados and bananas at employees at a deli in the Bronx section of New York following a dispute over a food order. This has been happening recently. Yeah. There was chicken nuggets the other day. I know. Someone wasn't happy with like their chicken sandwich as the chicken sandwich was getting cold on the right, floor. They right. were fighting. Um, the victim suffered lacerations and fractures to his face and a broken jaw. He was taken wow. to the hospital in stable condition. Police uh, say the suspects fled, but they don't know where they went, so they're looking for help with that. But avocados and avocado bananas. And bananas. And finally, yeah. a story that's timely for the show. Okay. Massachusetts woman who had no idea she was pregnant unexpectedly gave birth on a street Monday. Oh, boy. Christine Harvey of Maiden, Massachusetts, was, she said she was in so much excruciating pain that she had arranged for her friend to give her a ride to the hospital, but she never made it. Instead, going into labor and giving birth to the newborn on the street, Harvey told her uh, boyfriend that she was experiencing intense cramps, not realizing they were actually contractions. She went from here to there, and a baby came out, the boyfriend told the news. <laughs> okay, she went from here to there, and a baby came out. <laughs> Before first responders arrived at the scene, she gave birth to a six-pound, six-ounce baby girl. Holy cow. And But what a tiny little baby compared to Jeff Simpson's baby. Right. Jeff's baby came out like, ugh. My wife always Huge. doubts. My wife always doubts people who say they didn't know they were pregnant. I know. How do you not know that? You're like nine months of. She's like, pregnancy is tough. But how many it's times a, have you? How many times have you made the mistake that someone was pregnant and said, "You know what? How's the baby? When's the baby due?" Just once. See, so it's easy to mistake. So embarrassing. Jeff's story, I think, is better because they waited and waited and waited, and they knew the baby was coming. They waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. Just waited and waited, and they're like, we want to get in as close to the delivery as we can. You do understand this happened over the course of, what, like two and a half, three hours? So that's yeah. not waiting and waiting and waiting and well, waiting. Well, I think you really ought not look at it about the last few hours. Look at it over the, la- the seven days preceding that from when she was overdue. Do you know what this is? What? It's the, it's the problem of movie theaters. Because you get your reserved seat, right? So yeah. you don't have to wait in line. So you try to time it so you get there so you don't have to sit through all it's the true. commercials oh, and yeah. stuff. So this, it's that mentality. It's it. We're uh-huh. just trying to time it. You get there right on time. And But Jeff got caught wrong. in traffic. He got caught in traffic. Wrong. And he got caught in line trying to get a hamburger. And then the next thing they know, they're delivering in the nasty lobby. Alternative facts. I'll just stop. I'll get some corn nuts. It'll be fine. We have plenty of time. Did you guys eat corn nuts? I don't think you're supposed to eat before you deliver a baby. No, no, no. Not corn nuts. Did you Did you have a soda while you were waiting? <laughs> <laughs> I had a specialty drink. <laughs> well, we're glad your wife is healthy and happy and cute little Stanislav, a.k.a. Stas. That's not his name. I know. I'm just but, kidding. Yeah. Stas is, is alive but and As well. you said, he would probably try to say it. I like that name. Often. It's really cool. He's going to, he will be an incredible Russian spy. He'll probably be a senator, <laughs> the way this country's going. At least you know he'll be famous. <laughs> he'll be in all the spy movies. Hey, uh, crazy story for you today about a disgruntled man releases bed bugs in a main uh, city office. 
The city manager in Augusta, Maine, says a mun- at the municipal office building had to be sprayed for bed bugs after a man threw a cup of the pests onto an office counter. About 100 of them scattered off. Ugh. City manager William Just... Briggio says the man apparently complained Friday to the code enforcement office about bed bugs at his former apartment. Then he left, but returned after he showed the cup of bugs to a manager at the, his new apartment. He was told he couldn't live there. Look, I've got bed bugs. These are from my apartment. So Briggio says the man let the bed bugs loose in the general assistance office where he was asked to form uh, for a form to request assistance and apparently was told he didn't qualify. Bed bugs Ooh. doesn't qualify. Okay. All right, then. I'll, give, I'll be back. This sounds like a I'll be villain back. from the old Batman series mm-hmm. or something. Look out. He's packing bed bugs. Have you ever had bed bugs? <laughs> no. I have. That makes sense. Like currently? Or no, 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 no. Okay, this was now. in Russia. Oh, I bet they're horrible. We had to move. Do they bite? We had to move. They uh, they bit my friend, but uh, not me. So if somebody he was, like... It was a bit larger than me, but yeah. So at night, uh, would someone tuck you in and say, hey, Jeff, don't let the bed bugs bite? <laughs> did that help? And they didn't. Didn't they? <laughs> no, they didn't bite me. Thanks, Grandma. So apparently it did help. So it totally helps. That's pretty nasty, though. All of a sudden, bed bugs, or like it'd be like head lice, right? So, if somebody threw head lice on you, at that point, everything must burn. There's no, I yeah, mean, yeah, but what do you, you burn your head? Burn well, your you hair? You got to shave your hair oh. off. You, you have to go through the car wash three or four times. You got to move. Brush. You got to wash everything that you own, or just wrap light it, in it on fire. And you have yeah. to comb your hair over and over and over and over if you have lice. Ugh. Just shave it off. Actually, you just hover over the person and you pick at them and eat them. Yeah, you're not a <laughs> monkey. Uh, speaking of monkeys, uh, this story has nothing to do with a monkey. A bear breaks into a home, but of all the things the bear could, you'd think it would like go to the pantry, get a lot of honey, get a lot of you know, get some fruit snacks, get all the food that you know bears love. But instead, this bear uh, decided to play the piano. Here's a little audio. That bear's got bear, chops. Stop that. Stop my That's exactly what one bear did inside the residence in Colorado. When homeowners returned to their home, <laughs> she's, she's so frustrated. She discovered that they had a bear in the kitchen. Their kitchen had been trashed. And assuming it was a burglar, they called the police who eventually suspected the intruder was an animal. That's when they inquired about home security surveillance, and they asked to review the footage. And upon looking at the footage, they saw the bear roamed around the living room. And at one point, you could see the bear played the piano. You know what this is? What? It's the country bear jamboree from Disneyland. It's exactly what it is. No. That's exactly what was it is. Was he animatronic? No. They say oh. it was a real bear, but... Maybe I, he was inspired I by think, that. Well, I think, I, yeah. He but, saw a bear mm-hmm. succeeding in life. In a country bear jamboree. And he's yeah. like, I could do that. Do you know how hard it is for a bear to play root beer rag? Maybe it was the country bear jamboree gang because it sounds like more than just the piano. Yeah, no, I think they did. Somebody brought in a drum set. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Can you imagine being at a Billy Joel concert and he pulls this out? It's like, no, really? I want you to play, uh, you know, they my life. They, yeah, I oh, want you to play my life. Just stick to the hits. <laughs> Just stick to the. Hits. They call it root bear rag. 
That's the new name of it. That's funny. Thank you. Very little. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, how to learn about, learn from your life. Your life has a lot to teach you. Many of us don't ever take a break to actually smell the roses. So what has life taught you so far? Stick with us. We'll walk you through it. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, every, we live these lives. Life isn't easy, but man, there's a lot to learn and a lot that we are learning. There's a lot of wisdom we can take out of life and even maybe reframe our lives to be more of a learning experiment than, you know, necessarily something about right or wrong, good or bad, happy or unhappy. What if we could turn everything into a learning and uh, so who better to help us with that than Bob Taby? Bob Taby is a LCSW, a counselor, a social worker, author of 10 books, and uh, just has been writing. He's a prolific writer. He's been in, published in over 300 magazines and journal articles. Today he's here to share an article that he wrote uh, titled, What Has Life Taught You So Far? Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I'm glad to be here. Talk about it. I mean, life is not easy, right? But the the funny thing is, is we are learning and we're, it, it's almost like humans are inherent learners, aren't we? From birth, yeah, we're growing, yeah, we're well, learning. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember hearing a long time ago that, you know, problems are all about lessons. You know, once once you get the lesson that the problem's trying to teach you, the problem goes away, you know. That's so and true. I know from practical experience, and probably you do too, you know, the first time you try to change your oil on your car and you screw it up, you learn pretty quickly that uh, there's a lesson here and I get better at it. Yeah. And every time and then but I guess it's almost like we we feel like it should be everything should be more easy, more natural. We we have this weird, I guess now social media is not helping because every time I look on social media, I see how everybody else has a better life than me. How yeah. how do we make learning part of life? Well, I think that, you know, I think part of it is is, you know, slowing down enough and kind of asking that question. You know, I, I work a lot, for example, with couples and do a lot of couples therapy, and I know you're familiar with that yeah. as well. And you know, when 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 they kind of when the couples of them are sitting on my couch in my office, are kind of talking about or kind of running through the argument they had on Saturday night. What I usually find myself saying is, okay, what's the moral of the story of this argument? You know, what did you learn from this argument? You know that, and it's usually about two things. It's about you know, what is it the problem that we need to solve, but also what is it we need to learn about how we communicate so we don't have the argument each every and every time. And I think life is that way. You know, it's kind of a process of elimination. And if you kind of have the attitude that there's something to learn in here, if it's not about, you know, I remember hearing somebody, I think it was Anthony Robbins or somebody said, you know, you know your life is working for you. It's not working against you. Hmm. And a lot of us, you know, it's easy to get the idea that life's working against me all the time, and I'm always struggling against life. And does that, I guess, does that mindset matter? Does it matter if you think life is working against you uh, versus life is working for you? Absolutely. Because it it sets you up, doesn't it? It sets you up long-term for what you get out of life. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, you know, it's all about attitude. (laughs) A lot of things are. But I think that's absolutely true. You know, if if you see a problem as a challenge... You know, rather than somebody kind of uh, kicking you in the butt, if you see problems as opportunities to learn something new and you get better at it. You know, I tell my kids, I have kids who are grown and they're adults, you know, I'm, I'm 
well, I look back on my 20s and 30s and I go, oh, my God, you know, yeah. you know, I wish I had yeah. the body of a 20 or 30 year yeah. old. But in terms of how, you know, how much I've been able to kind of cull from life, you know, at my age, I'm in much better shape than I was back then. Mm. It's so true. And you, you almost you don't want to go back. You, you would love to go back to have health or the yeah. boy to go back and to go back, especially at that level of not knowing. Uh, not not worth it. Do you think it's natural? Do we do we are we kind of either a natural learner optimist that maybe sees life as as bringing us the lesson, or is this something that that we can intentionally learn and grow into? So I, I think for a lot of I mean I think there's you know again you know research shows people are born with certain kind of temperaments and you know family history and whether you're you know prone to depression and things like that, but. I think absolutely you can learn it. You know, my style tends to be cognitive behavioral kind of therapy. And, mm. you know, it's about it's about how do you think? You know, you, you controlling your brain rather than your brain controlling you. You know, you being able to kind of put a good, you know, different spin on what's happening to you. If you do that enough, you change your brain, you know. And if you do that enough, you begin to have a different view of life. You know, one of the – and the research is kind of borne out. You know, one of the real a real simple but common – uh, aid for people who are struggling with depression is 10 minutes before you go to bed at night, write down all the positive things that happen. And what you want to look for is little stuff, you know, like the sun was out, that somebody opened the door for me at the bank, you know, that somebody complimented, you know, the tie I was wearing, whatever it was. And it helps you train your, it's not so much that you're kind of feeling the feelings of that, but you train your brain to notice that. Mm. You know, you do it every night for a few weeks, and then you begin to actually notice the little stuff that's good. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're dialed into it now. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, a lot of people are dialed into the negative. You know, yeah. I read something just the other day that I, you know, just evolutionary-wise, we're kind of, our brains are wired to what it's like four or five to one to notice negative things. Yeah. Just because that's how you survive, you know, out in the wild, that's how you survive. You got to look for predators and look around corners and whatever. And so we got to work hard to look for the positive. It's so true. I mean, really, I mean, flowers are beautiful, but snakes could kill you. So <laughs> your body would naturally say, watch yeah. out for snakes. Absolutely. And you're not going to see the flowers when they're coming around the corner. So yeah, true. Now, you also, in your article, you talk about that midlife, people at midlife, um, statistically, according to the research, are, are generally more happy than those in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, which which seems almost counterintuitive. It's like midlife is when life is kind of really pressing down on you. So how come they're happier? Well, I think a lot of it is. I mean, there are struggles at midlife. I've met people, and I'm sure you have too. You know, the the classic midlife crisis is where you're starting to kind of reevaluate your life. But hopefully, what by the time you get to midlife, um, you've learned how to navigate life. Yeah, you know, you've learned lessons. You know the you know the the senior partner at the law firm has learned a whole lot more than you know the brand new uh, law school graduate. You know, and you know he can take things in stride, and he has a sense of perspective, and he has a sense of skill that the other guy hasn't just caught up with. Hmm. And you know, and you do this in the same thing. You know, in terms of relationships, you do this in terms of you know parents. You know, they struggle with their first kid in terms of being parents because it's all brand new. Yeah. You know, by the time they have the third kid, yeah. you're in know, much better shape. <laughs> but you've also you've also had so many successes and you realize the successes don't 
quite matter. Like, I mean, we, we build everything up like, well, I mean, when I'm finally a partner in the law firm, life is going to be so much different for right. me. And by midlife, you're a partner and life's not that different. So you, right. you realize right. that, that, oh, okay. Yeah, and that's, and, that's, and that's the midlife crisis part, you know, yeah. where you go. I, I've, I've met a lot of folks, uh, you know, I remember seeing somebody a long time ago who, he was a doctor or something, and um, he was in his 50s, and, you know, he was just struggling, you know, and he was struggling with his marriage. And, like, the second time I saw him, he, you know, he said, you know, I am just tired of being good. <laughs> I'm tired, I'm tired of, of living said, a good, I'm healthy life. I'm tired of doing what I should do yeah. all the time. You know, and he kind of ran his life with all these rules in his head, and he kind of ran his life by, you know, following them, and he felt guilty if he didn't, and he kind of felt stretched in a lot of different directions. You know, and by the time he's 50, he's got, I got you know, and I got 20 years left. Do I want to keep doing for the next 20 what I've been doing for the last 20? Hmm. Sometimes it's yes, but a lot of times it's no. I need to tweak it. Yeah, that's you know? a and big deal. And for a lot deal. of folks I see, it's about, they're tired of the shoulds, and they need to move towards what they want. Is, and, and how does that tie to happiness? Because so much of our life is about the shoulds. Um, right. And I mean, but there's something really interesting about being a 19 or a 20 year old where sometimes you're not even buying into the shoulds either. You're just you're just living free and hard. But, well, you're doing the anti should. Yeah, the anti should. <laughs> really? No, that's a great <laughs> way to put it. Is yeah. so. But but is there a correlation then? Um, I mean, you, I mean, you still want to be a decent, good person. Oh, but absolutely. I guess. But I guess. So what's the correlation to happiness? How do we? How do we? How do we not just do the shoulds, uh, but get stuff done and be healthy and happy? Yeah, I, th- I, I think, you know, w- w- an exercise I often have some of my clients do that when they're kind of at that point is, you know, if they want to shake the shoulds, and, uh, you know, that's understandable because it feels oppressive and they feel like they're not. The, the part of the problem here is they, they feel like they're not owning their own lives. Yeah. Or too much of themselves have either not been, have been left to the side of the road somewhere along the line, or they never really had it cultivated. You know, when I mm-hmm. see couples, and again, you're familiar with this, you know, at, the, at some base level, when people are coming in for some kind of couples therapy, it, it, they're individuating. Yeah. You know, they've been married X number of years, and they're at a point where too much of themselves has been lost. You know, too much of themselves has been watered down. Too much of themselves has been out of balance. They've been too much on the parent side or the work side or whatever, and they need to get it back. And, um, you know, and that's a struggle. How do they do that? How do they do that and still stay within the relationship? That's a challenge. I think part of it is you go from the shoulds to your own values. Yeah. You know, this is where you you sit down with yourself uh, and a pad of paper and a pencil and you start going, what do I really believe? You know, what's really important to me? And you don't want 500 values. You want 10. Yeah. You know, or... Maneuverable. Or something something. You, yeah. But you want something that define your own integrity. Hmm. You know, that's kind of coming from you and not from your parents, you know, somebody else. They kind of come from your own heart, from your own gut. And then if you follow those and you live your life close to that, then I think you're, you know, are you going to be happy camper 24-7? No, but I think you're feeling that you're running your life. Yeah. Is, Is what gives you that sense of satisfaction. And the sense that, again, I'm controlling it. You know, there's not some voice in my head that's telling me what to do and beating me up when I don't do it. So true. And and, a voice of of kind of integrity that's telling me this is what's important to me. Yeah. You're lying. And you actually, 
to me, it almost now feels like now the rubber meets the road. Now you're you're actually in the groove of your life. That's right. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah, really and cool. And again, if not now, when? You know, yeah. That's kind of the challenge. Well, and uh, let's do this, Bob. Let's take a break and come back because I want you to walk us through kind of how we can – because you just described being intentional about our values. How can we be intentional about what life is teaching? I know you've got some great insights as to uh, how we can actually learn the lessons life is handing us. Stick with us more with Bob Taby after this break, learning what life has taught. Welcome back. We are talking about uh, learning from life, what it has to teach you. Uh, You're here, right? You're experiencing life. You're going through it anyway. Man, maybe you could make it more enjoyable, more, um, more pleasurable, even in the hard times, if you could turn it into a learning experiment. Joining us uh, to talk about that is Bob Taby. Bob Taby is an LCSW, a counselor, does a lot of uh, psychotherapy, but uh, really is a cognitive behavioral therapist as well, and um, is uh, is talking today about how you can actually take life and, and in an intentional way, go about processing learning. And uh, Bob, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Again, Bob Taby's website, go to Bob Taby, T-A-I-B-B-I.com, and you can get uh, all of his information about his workshops, everything he does. Bob, talk about how we, we take, how we actually intentionally learn yeah. from life. Yeah, we, I, as we were talking about before, I mean, a part of it is kind of having that kind of curious kind of attitude about, you know, how come this happened and what, what am I learning from it? One of the things I talked about in the uh, article I wrote recently, and an exercise that I've used for, for several years with folks is um, uh, it's kind of paper-pencil exercise that, that that's helpful. Yeah. So so the way you run down, it, it's fairly simple, but it's kind of it can be really powerful. So what you do is you write down on top of a piece of paper, you know, what has life taught me? And you, you, you write it down. You're not going to do computer stuff because that mm. makes you all yeah, <laughs> perfectionistic. So you just got to write it down and paper. And then what you want to do is kind of do a mental review of your life. You can do it chronologically. You can just kind of wait for stuff. But you, what what you want to do is ask yourself what's what, what are what are ten important emotional experiences in my life. Huh. And what you're looking for is you're going to kind of do this kind of mental review and kind of step through your childhood or your young adulthood or teenage years. And what you're looking for is to see what just kind of pops up in your head. And you're looking for things that have an emotional punch to them. You'll know what it is when you get this emotional punch. And it may be something as simple as, you know, the time I tried out for the school play and I didn't get a part, hmm. you know. Or it could be something my mom said to me when I was six years old and I was late from whatever's. Or it could be something big, you know, when my grandmother died or whatever. Um, but you want to look for – and you don't want to have a 1,000. You just want to have, like – eight to ten things, but you want to look for these kind of key points in your life. And again, look for the ones that are emotionally powerful, not just don't go on autopilot. Yeah. Just think about when my dad died or something. And you write them down. You've got to make a list. Now, the idea here is you're, you're going to look at it kind of with your rational brain, your analytical brain. You, it, this is not an exercise in kind of re-traumatizing yourself and kind of 
going down the emotional rabbit hole of that that experience. It's more about looking at it and going, okay, as you go through each one, you're going to do two passes on this. The first one is, what did this event, what did this experience teach me about other people? What did it teach me about life in general? You know, and so here you may find, you know, you got to, you know, I didn't make the school play and you need to try harder Hmm. or, you know, you can't be special all the time or something. Yeah. You know, or, you know, when grandma died, you learn that people can be compassionate when others are suffering or that, you know, life is fragile. Something you want to see, and you don't want to belabor, but you want to think about it and see what kind of pops up in your head. The second pass is what is it? What does it teach you about you? You know, what did you learn about you? Well, maybe I need to try out for things, even though I may not get it. You know, mm. maybe I need to learn how to take risks. Maybe I need to, you know, speak up and not bite my tongue and hold on to things. And so you kind of go through the whole list and then look at the whole list and are there one or two messages that are really coming across? You know, are there themes here? You know, again, this is the idea. What is your life trying to teach you? You know, I believe, you know, everybody's got a bunch of little problems, flat tires and kids running, you know, getting sick and things like that. But there's also themes in your life where you're, you're struggling with one or two big things. You know, it's... It has a lot of different faces, but you have one or two things that you keep bumping your head into, hmm. you know, and so what is that theme, you know, and a lot of times it is as simple or, or as hard as I need to speak up, you know, I need to take risks, I need to let other people know how I feel, I need to give up control, you know, I need to be less critical of myself, something. But that, again, you're looking for what's, what's the message. You know, and again, you take your time with this, and it can be emotionally powerful. But you're looking, you're looking again to to. But the idea that there's something here, and, and there's something for life to teach you. But it's coming. What's interesting is, I mean, it's coming from you, right? So it's from it, you, absolutely. So what's so cool about this is your. If you see a trend, if you see a theme. The right. theme is you. This is your brain is Absolutely. is basically communicating. There's a theme here, and if you're if you wrote down those ten things and then you derived those ten lessons and those became your theme, that became your theme. That is you telling you what right. you need to know. Yes, and th- and that's why I'm saying it's really important to kind of do it with your the kind of rational side of your brain. Yeah, you, know, you don't want to get into your emotional brain where it's oh it's you know the story of this is that everybody always you can't trust anybody or you're always gonna. Yeah. Why bother? It's not about that. It's about you know. There's something else here, and that's why you you want to learn that. And 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 I and again, you know, it's it's you know, I I'm sort of fascinated with the idea of you know, you have a relationship with your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a relationship with yourself. Now, some people have lousy relationships with themselves. You know, they're always beating themselves up. They're always self-critical. They're always kicking themselves. You know, and but. But that's something you can work on. Right. You know, and and it is kind of a dialogue. You know, it's kind of like, okay, my wife is trying to tell me something. I have a relationship. How are we doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how, are, how are me, how are me and, and myself doing? You know, how are me and my life doing? Does it matter if when you make your list of the 10, 
you know, emotionally significant or important points. What if they're all negative? I mean, well, they're, they're, they're probably are, a lot of them are going to be negative. Or it could be like gradu- I graduated from college, sure. which was something I never thought I could do or whatever. Absolutely. But it, but a lot That's of them could be like. I got messed over in that business by that guy. Absolutely, I got yeah. yeah. So, do, yeah, I, but you I, don't want to. Suspecting the fact that they will be. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I would, what I've done this with folks. You know, sixty percent or sixty or seven percent of the things they write down are going to be negative. Yeah. You know, they'll throw in their wedding. They'll, you know, and they'll does it matter? It may not matter, right? Because if if it's emotionally significant, it's yeah, communicating yeah. to you. Yes. Yes. And again, the fact that yourself, you, what you just said, you're self-selecting. Yeah. You know, you're kind of pulling out of, you know, I'm always fascinated by the idea that, you know, when you look back on your on your past or you look back through your childhood, I, you know, I, I, I've done it. You probably have, too. You know, I talk to my kids. They have their view of their childhood is totally different than mine. You know, they, everybody walks out with like a dozen or two dozen yeah. memories and we're on different pages. You know, there's some overlap, but out of everything that happened in your life. You know, you 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 pick a handful, mm-hmm. and you hold on to them. And generally, because they're all connected, you know, there is a theme to them. You know, there's a story, there's a narrative that kind of runs through your life. You know, that you tell to yourself, and you tell about life. And that's what you're kind of trying to draw out here. Mm-hmm. Being aware of it then helps you either to realize what is the message and what's the lesson learned. Well, what do I need to change? You know, what is what, what is it I need to kind of step up and do differently if I don't want to keep repeating same old mistakes? So, so the final point is, once you look at the themes, uh, what do I need to do to incorporate the lesson yes. into the life? Yes. Because I guess that's the point we might miss is we might see the theme that I'm the oppressed, beaten down, always taken advantage of person. Right. Um, but if that's the theme, there's a lesson here. Right. Yeah, and yeah, what's, what, what's, again, we're back to what's the moral of the story, you know? What, what do I need to do not to be the oppressed person? Maybe it's, I got to step up and speak up and push back. Maybe it's about my attitude. Yeah. You know, I just need to not kind of see myself as always being the victim and always being trapped. And then how would you tie this back to our earlier discussion about values? Because if I'm a person that doesn't want to play the victim, but the lesson I've learned is that, man, I sure play the victim a lot, then right. I guess I could go back to my values and say, I don't – this doesn't align to my values. No wonder right. I'm less happy. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I kind of look at you know, defining your value as kind of laying out a blueprint. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's kind of becomes the, – the blueprint, it becomes the foundation for who you want to be. You know, again, rather than a reactive life, rather than an inherited life based on what other people told you you should be, you're going to be have a proactive, created life. Hmm. And you that know, seems inherently something that will inherently create more flow for you, more positive psychology, more positivity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, is it going to be hard? Yeah. And is it going to be hard to make changes? And is it going to be hard to kind of break your own patterns? Yeah, sure. Sure. But again, if, again, if it's, it's the same theme, if you're coming from you, you know, if you're coming from your own gut level beliefs and values, then, then, you, then you have the courage to step up and do it. Then mm-hmm. you have the motivation. Because you're not just kind of doing it to appease other people. You're not just doing it to stay out of trouble. You're not just doing it because you should. Yeah. Is 
what what is amazing too it seems like to me what what you're demonstrating to us is the power of the human to to really write their own story to absolutely this is all about just writing your own story and you can turn it into a drama or a comedy you absolutely. can turn it into a tragedy um but it but it's the intentional side of write the story Absolutely. And, and you cannot not have a story. Yeah. You may not be fully aware of it. I mean, the idea behind this exercise is to be aware of the story, but you, always, you automatically have a story. You know, it's not, you know the, it's not the events that happen. It's your story about the events that make your life. So it's true. what you say next to yourself. Yeah. Is, is there any harm to, to thinking about this daily? I mean, um, you can see how some people, yeah. you know, would just be obsessed with the, I've got to keep thinking about this. But w- I guess we're already, if we already feel like we're a loser in life, we're already probably having that thought daily. So Absolutely. if you're going to correct it, it almost seems like you'd, you'd have to do it daily. Yeah, and that's where back to, you know, the, the kind of the depression exercise of what do you look, you look for things that are, that are impo- you know, positive in the day. But also it is about, yeah, what have, what have I learned today? Sure, that would be a great exercise. Hmm. You know, what, I, okay, another step on the path. What what new things have I learned about me and the world? Mm-hmm. You know, in a good way. Again, not just the old one. Yeah, boy, you you always get screwed. Yeah, so you don't want to repeat the whole story, but but to actually kind of be it, 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 that you know just, again being conscious, being proactive, being mindful, being deliberate, hmm. rather than going on autopilot. You know, rather than kind of going dulled and and uh, no, and and then back to your earlier point of every night going to bed, looking for the signs or the blessings or the positives that it's happening. Right. That then you're then you really you'll start picking up the signs that you're becoming what you want. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's all. And again, I, I, I don't know. I, I remember seeing that that documentary on uh, called Happy or something like that. Yeah. And they, yeah, you know, these people, you know, this this poor guy in India is living in this shack, and you know, he he has no shoes, and he pulls this this cart, you know, around Delhi, and he says, "I'm a happy man." Mm. You know, I come home, my kids greet me. I got a great house. I mean, mm-hmm. his house has got three sides. <laughs> You know, it gets rough when the rain, when the monsoon comes. It get, we get a little wet, but it's yeah. a great house. You know, and he feels like he has neighbors who are supportive. And I mean, people in people in third world countries in many ways are happier than they are. They, they just they, well, I remember reading the statistics. You know that uh, the, the depression, you know, the depression rate where people actually say they're depressed is in the United States is eighteen percent. Where we're second in the world to France, where it's twenty-two percent, but you get third-world countries, it's like three percent. Well, they don't have any; they don't have a concept of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you can't be depressed. This is life. Right. It's just life. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Holy cow! What would you say is the one thing, Bob? I always ask for the one thing that makes the biggest difference today. Something that every one of us could go home and do today that would um, that would actually make us feel, you know, connected to life and like that life is meaningful. Yeah, I, I think it's what, what what we just said. You know, the notion that you can create your own story. You know, that life is not something that happens to you, but something you create. You, that you can be a creator of your own your own life. Mm. You know, I remember remember that line from that movie Benjamin Button. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can change or stay the same. You know, and it's up to you. You can stop whenever you want, or you can keep going. And I and I absolutely believe that. 
You know, and if you're not happy, in the end of that that quote is, you know, if you find yourself, you know, hope you're proud of your life, and if you find you're not, I hope you can start all over again. That's too. And when you think of the story, that makes sense. Yeah. Just start it again. Tomorrow's another day. Bob Taby's his name. Bob, thank you so much for your time. You can go to his website, bobtaby.com, T-A-I-B-B-I.com. Many books, 10 or so books, 300 plus articles he's written. And some pretty awesome insight about understanding yourself. We'll take a break, folks, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Man, you know what? Uh, there's uh, I've, I found that Benjamin Button quote he was talking about. Um, This is a letter to his daughter. He said, for what it's worth, it's never too late or in my case, too early to be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Stop whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. It's great advice. Stop or stay the same. You know, if if you want to keep being who you are, be who you are. There's no time limit until you die, of course. In, In Benjamin Button's world, there's a time limit. By the way, you're looking a bit younger. I'm starting to worry that maybe you've got the Benjamin Button syndrome. I totally do. Well, it's because my gallbladder, it's – I haven't been eating anything really of any substance or fat. Oh, you didn't hear. I don't have gallstones. I have sludge. I have have sludge in my gallbladder. I was going to, you know, applaud you on that, but then you said sludge and I wasn't sure if that was good news. Oh, it's great news. Is, now, is this sludge part of – is this the sludge that's found in Townton Abbey? No. No. Townton okay. Abbey is thriving, by the way. Nothing but money being made, 100 percent happiness. It's all good. Except there's sludge. So Except there's that. There's sludge in my gallbladder. But uh, we figured out my surgeon has now referred another surgeon. I, I, I spent the last month working with a surgeon that I didn't need to be working with. Somehow I got to a surgeon that specializes in cancer surgery, and I don't have cancer. So all I need is my gallbladder out. And when three tests later, when we figured that out, um, now I just know I've got sludge, and we just need to rip that little bile bag out. I just don't know what to think. You know, some people can't trust a president who sends out mean tweets. Yeah. I can't trust the mayor of a fictional town that has sludge. Boy, I'm sorry. You'll have to get over that. Hey, uh, that's uh, hour number two of the program. Go check us out on iTunes, on Stitcher, on BYURadio.org, or on MattTownsend.com. We're everywhere. We'll be back. Stick with us. Learning about life. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a wonderful, uh, what is it, Thursday? Awesome. It's a good day, folks. Lucky uh, to be alive. Uh, having just driven through the Le Mans of uh, 
construction going on around BYU. You took a Lamaze class? Yeah. So mm. awesome. Such a great program for you today. Man, I got an interview that uh, we, we taped uh, just a couple days ago. Incredible. You will not believe how much transportation is involved in making your iPhone. It will blow your mind. You mean like the guy that transports the iPhones to the Best Buy? That, that's one of the tiny things. But like the little battery inside had to have 50, 60 shipments to create a battery. Just to create the one little battery that then was then shipped to the place where they installed it in your phone. And then it was shipped again to the place where you bought the phone. And then on and on and on. But uh, the numbers... Exactly, are staggering. And today we're going to be talking about the magnificent, maddening, mysterious world of transportation. Door to door, what, that's the name of the book. And uh, it'll blow your mind. 500,000 miles, I think, total for one iPhone. And I would travel 500,000 miles. <laughs> Crazy. So, and you just think it's an iPhone, like no big deal. But the same thing is going on with your socks and your undies. And your shorts and your and your shoes, all of these things. And none of us think about the transportation effects. Anyway, oh, fascinating interview up next. Um, also, today we're going to be covering um, a lot of the news, uh, maybe a little recap on what's going on. Holy cow, what a shooting that took place in uh, D.C. Tried to interrupt the congressional, I guess, uh, baseball game between Republicans and Democrats. Which is still going to happen on Thursday. Still happening. Tonight. You're not stopping it. President will not be there because of security reasons. Well, he's not really a sports fan either. Well, come on. He skipped opening day. (laughs) You wouldn't want to miss this. He did skip opening day, but that was about throwing the ball at first pitch. But apparently he's got a good arm. So he says without demonstrating it. But apparently there's been videos of him doing it, right? Oh. But he's not like, you know, he's got a good arm, but for some odd reason... He didn't want to be put on the spot. That has nothing to do with the shooting. No, but it's but, just... Or does it? So that's going on, plus chaos again back in the Russia whole Russia discussion. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll hear news about that. So a lot to cover today, but first... Vlad held his uh, 15th annual TV special in Russia. Oh, did he? Where they do like the five-hour press conference. You can ask any question you want. They have people from all over the country and satellite links coming in with all kinds of crazy questions. What a great and, yeah. thing he does. You see the... Just offers all these answers. You see politicians asleep in the front row because they're going into the fifth hour of this TV show. Yeah, five hours is a long time. But if you do it once a year... He seems to enjoy it. Yet five hours is not a long time when you're binging your Netflix show. No, not at all. I mean, who couldn't do that every day? It's barely half the the, the whole series. Right, exactly. Uh, We'll get to all that fun. But first, let's get to the real headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on on around the country we should worry about? The MedStar Washington Hospital Center releasing an update late Wednesday on Majority Whip. Uh, what Stephen Scalise revealing that the congressman who was shot Wednesday morning during the practice for a baseball game remains in critical condition. In a statement, the hospital said Scalise uh, sustained a single rifle shot to the left hip with the bullet traveling across his pelvis, fracturing bones, injuring internal organs, and causing severe bleeding. He was transported to the Level 1 Trauma Center in shock. He immediately entered surgery, underwent an additional procedure to stop the bleeding. His condition is critical, the hospital said. He has received multiple units of blood transfusion. He will require additional operations. The hospital said that he will. they will provide periodic updates as his 
progress continues to improve. Mm. But uh, he's got some uh, some distance to go here before he's back on his feet. Wow. The president uh, visited him yesterday. I imagine a, a long line of people or uh, either they have visited or will visit to uh, wish him well. Uh, the U.S. Senate on Wednesday approved new sanctions to punish Russia for interfering with the 2016 election. A bipartisan legislation which passed with an overwhelming 97 to 2. Wow. There, it's almost agreement, full agreement. Slaps new sanctions on Russia, restricts President Trump from easing them in the future without first receiving congressional approval. So okay. they kind of handcuff the president. Handcuff the pre- that's fine. So he can't do anything that maybe he was hinting towards. The deal was attached to an Iran sanction bill that is expected to pass later this week. Top Republican senators had initially wanted to give the White House space to try to improve U.S.-Russian relations, but ultimately decided talks with Russia have been moving too slowly. The only two senators to vote against the measure. Any guesses? You know uh, both of these names. They're not obscure. Uh, but they'd be very pro-Russia, apparently. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to bet Rand Paul. Yeah. And um, who else? Oh, uh, ran for president. McCain. No, uh, the one that, uh, oh, from Texas, senator from Texas. Cruz. Ted, Ted Cruz. No, but his good friend, Mike Lee. Mike Lee from Utah. Mike Lee voted against it. The sanctions measure uh, now will land on Trump's desk where he will either sign or veto the measure. He has not indicated. Why would Mike Lee vote for that? I don't know. I found that kind of surprising. Okay. You can see Rand Paul. Uh-huh, he doesn't totally. think anything ever goes Don't, far yeah, enough. Right. He wants to just eliminate every bill. is is just not good enough for him. So he votes sure. against it. Fox News has abandoned its fair and balanced slogan instituted by its founder and ex-CEO Roger Ailes. According to a Wednesday dispatch from the New York Magazine, the decision was made last August after Ailes ouster by Fox News and because the phrase had been mocked. Uh, Fox News no longer fair and balanced. Another executive explained that the tagline was too closely associated with Roger Ailes. Uh, Additionally, uh, the reporter uh, found that per executives, the network's marketing strategy has shifted to its other slogan, most watched, most trusted. Hmm. I guess if you say something long enough. I think General Mills adopted the fair and balanced to go with their cereals. Yeah. A fair and balanced breakfast. General Mills. I liked the general more when he was like a lieutenant general, lieutenant colonel. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think he was more humble when he was Private Mills. Yeah, Private Mills. What a guy that guy was. What else you got for us, And Sarah? finally, it's summertime, right? Yeah. Parents tend to find maybe some sort of summer camp or a mm-hmm. summer program for their teenagers to keep them kind of engaged, but also to have some fun. Sure. Kind of going, right? So two teenage boys, maybe they took this a different to a different level, I guess. What, I what did they Two do? Two teenage boys are safe and sound Wednesday after spending three cold and dark, no doubt harrowing days, lost in the catacombs between the street underneath the streets of Paris. Oh, really? According to the BBC, the two boys ages 16 and 17 were rescued early Wednesday following a four-hour effort by search teams with rescue dogs. They were taken to a nearby hospital, treated for hypothermia, though authorities say they were otherwise unharmed. The temperature in the pitch-black passageways is about 59 degrees under the streets of Paris. Oh, wow. The catacombs, which house the bones of approximately 6 million dead, form a 150-mile maze beneath the city. Only a small portion of the catacombs are open to the public. Partygoers and enthusiasts known as cataphiles have been known to access other tunnels through secret entrances. The people that are in the public 
tours that you can take yeah. in the certain portion they the, have open the to the public, yeah. they say that everyone that goes on the public side of the catacombs never get lost. So oh. if you choose to go elsewhere, that's your own fault. Yeah, I mean, so. But how's that for a summer camp? Go hang out with six million dead you know, people. Dead people. <clears throat> but so they got they got lost. They got scared. Yeah. They and were they freezing. Got cold. Yeah. Wow. What'd you do for this summer? Yeah, that's well, a, that's the word. I about I, died. That's an essay waiting to be written. I went winter camping. Yeah, like do you remember when you did go winter camping? And I improperly activated the hand warmers so I froze all night. Yeah. You got you got to do it right. But you know what? Not everything's easy the first time. Well, it really should have been easy the first time. Yeah. I mean, all you had to do is read the instructions. Um, by the way, is anybody noticing the temperature in the studio? It was really hot when I walked in initially. Now it kind of feels a little cooler. I walked in. Jeff's shirt is off. He's got a towel around his head and right. his neck. He's sweating like a dog. Kind of I s- think Palakiko's behind this. Yeah, for sure. Palakiko loves a little hot sauna. Um, so apparently the experts, you know how uh, James Comey mm. wrote memos about his boss. He went in and then he, he, he met with Mr. Trump, President Trump, and then after he'd go write a memo right. about what they talked about. Well, the experts are suggesting you don't do this with your own boss. Really? Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's going to create problems for you psychologically as well as professionally. Mm. You got to be careful. It's just. Will you start trying to create a situation that would be more evidence to write? Are you trying to create a situation that becomes something at that it point? It might, yeah. You might actually be creating, they call it rehearsal. So you could actually morph the idea into sometimes, you know, because memories aren't perfect. Right. So psychologists say writing down memories is a form of what psychologists call rehearsal, a way to retain information and solidify it into memory by repeating it and revisiting it. But the technique has its drawbacks. While you can strengthen your recollection of certain details by writing them out, the details you don't focus on can end up fading from your memory faster. So whatever he didn't focus on, like, does he even remember what they ate? Hmm. It was probably a well-done steak with ketchup. Notice he never brought that up in the hearings. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I want it burnt with ketchup. So anyway, um, there's – they also – I mean, in a way, uh, it automatically – and I guess if you're an investigative officer like the FBI, you might do it naturally. But with your own boss, you hmm. probably ought not be going in there – in an effort to, to catch or to investigate. But what if you're building a, a HR complaint against your boss? You need evidence. Yeah. You do need evidence. So Except she, okay. what happens when your boss finds out that you've been writing down all of these things. How's he going to find out? He has his vase. Really? He has his vase. I've been keeping documents. He finds these things out. Since my first day here. <laughs> really? And until this moment, you didn't know. No, I did. Coworkers no. would have no idea. You just go sit no. at your desk no. and type. How Jackie would you know? Jackie Tataishi said she's been sending them to me every day. She doesn't know. She's gone. Yeah, she said, I know. She had to send me all the notes before she left. Yeah. Anyway, be careful. Because it does, it is a sign that you are in an unhealthy situation. I could see that it would put you as the worker trying to be motivated to get more evidence. 
more items that you mm-hmm. can write down that would be of substance. So you're trying to maybe manufacture something, trying to you know, to maneuver your boss into saying something that yeah. you could use against them. You can use it for other reasons, like journaling would be a great idea. It's a great way to get your anxiety out, stuff like that. But right. if it's you're just... making a case, then it's telling you that's telling you something, right? You're you're in a weird position, a precarious situation, right? Don't you uh, aren't you a big advocate for this for uh, couples? What? Like just write down everything yeah. that your spouse has ever done just in case. Pictures, videos, get everything you can. Yes. Yeah. Then that way in the divorce settlement you'll have some firepower. Just combative scrapbooking is what you're recommending. <laughs> what a great way to live. <laughs> just think about it. And then imagine yet you're doing that at work every day. And there's some interesting stuff like apparently um, Sessions didn't talk to Comey. About any of this? Well, he had recused himself from. Well, I know, but if if, if you're meeting with the president and you're feeling uncomfortable about it, Comey should have said something to Sessions, and Sessions should have said something to Comey. Right? This should have been. Well, unless he didn't trust him, Mm. because you know. Write that in your journal. The whole volunteering on his campaign, and now he's like the chief law enforcement officer. Yep. Seems. So now, Show interestingly, me. Mueller apparently is now Mueller. 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 Mueller is apparently now um, looking into other charges actually against the president. It's now. fake news. Fake news. As as the uh, commander in chief said this morning, this is the single biggest political witch hunt in our nation's history. This is it. Regardless of the McCarthy hearings, regardless of the Red Scare, uh-huh. that he's just bringing people in and having hearings. Forget all that. Forget that. I mean, those are big deals. Don't get us wrong. This is the single biggest one. This is it. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder if things are different um, when they went to the hospital to visit that congressperson, congressman that was shot. Uh, Melania Trump went with him. I wonder if hmm. things are different now at the White House with Melania there. Has he been texting and tweeting less? I, mean, is I, re- he- I read this morning that Trump kind of, you know, maybe floated the idea of firing the special counsel guy. No, oh, he would never that, float. But then Melania was one of the voices that came in and said, no, no, you can't do that. It would look bad. If you have nothing to hide, why fire the guy investigating you? See, What's Melania. he going to find? Good to have her in the big house. And now that this story came out, it makes it even almost impossible to fire him because now he, the, you know, the story is he's investigating you. Yeah. So now if you fire him, it looks like you're just trying to – Now it looks really bad. Yeah. So just let it happen. If there's nothing there, don't worry about it. She's good. And, you know, her cookies are good too. Have you ever had those Melania cookies? No. So good. Pepperidge Farm? Nope. you got to check them out. They sound really yummy. They sound really yummy though. <laughs> Melania's. Never heard of them. Hmm. Interesting. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we will be talking about the impact of transportation on your life. You won't believe the numbers. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead a healthier life. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all know rush hour traffic can get crazy, and over the years it seems to have gotten even worse. And, uh, you know, people, transport of, uh, of content and products from store to uh, our neighborhoods, 
along with just more and more people driving. It just seems chaotic. So here to talk with us today about traffic patterns and so much more is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author Edward Humes. His latest book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. He's also the author of Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash, and the collaborative ebook that he did, Beyond the Snitch Tank. So we're honored to have him here. Edward Humes, thank you for your time. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. Now, Edward, what gets a Pulitzer Prize winning author and writer uh, to want to write a book about transportation? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're obsessed with transportation, aren't we? Totally. Uh, uh, it's embedded in everything we do, often uh, outside our zone of of being of awareness you know i mean we, we obsess on our time stuck in traffic of course but that's the littlest part of the the transportation that's essential to our daily lives everything you eat buy drink touch wear uh, every click you make makes a <laughs> when you buy something on amazon makes a truck trick we have truck <laughs> tri- trips somewhere that's true. and uh, by doing that we're embedding such fantastic amounts of transportation in our daily lives uh, and our daily choices that uh, it's really literally the biggest thing in our civilization. It's maybe the greatest accomplishment of our civilization, and it's our greatest curse all at once. You know, I I have never thought of that, but one, you know, one purchase on Amazon, and I've obligated airplanes, uh, trucks, people and, you know, even myself uh, to have to get this package somewhere or somehow to myself. Plus, it seems like uh, Americans have this love affair with an automobile anyway. So we add on top of it the fact that our cars say so much about us and we all feel like we have this universal right to have one and uh, to have it on the road. It's, it's true. We, we love our, our uh, cars in America, although that's a little bit on the wane, and there's a generational gap in the way uh, uh, younger generations feel about their cars than, uh, uh, than, than uh, my generation, you yeah. know, the generation of the 60s and 70s. But, uh, you know, think about our daily rituals, you know, how, uh, how it, it revolves around uh, the car. And I don't mean just driving to work. I mean, what's you know, what's your rite of passage as a teenager? You get your driver's mm. license, and what's the you know one of the first great uh, a baby shower uh, gifts an expectant uh, couple gets? It's the, the you know that great car seat that they're going to drive. You know, and of course you have the uh, ritual at the end of our lives where you have, we have fleets of these black cars uh, hearses to, to trundle us off to our resting places. I mean, it's every every uh, phase of our life has a has a big moment that revolves around our, our car, so and it's just ingrained. It's it's part of the way we live, and we never see anymore how grossly stupid our cars are, how wasteful they are, because the typical. American car weighs 4,000 pounds and carry five or six people along with eight suitcases. It has this huge <laughs> capacity. But most of the time, it's that vehicle moving one person from place to place. That's how we use our cars most of the time and most of our trips. It's, it's incredibly wasteful. 4,000 pounds to carry 180 pounds or whatever the weight is. Yeah, so if you, cap- if you calculated out how uh, what happens to the gas we pump into our gas tanks... You can see the waste in dollars and cents. Uh-huh. Forget what's inside, what the car is carrying. Just the inherent inefficiencies of an internal combustion engine. 
uh, 80% of the fuel that it burns is wasted. In other words, it goes to heat, it goes to mechanical inefficiency, it goes to friction. Uh, so only 20% of that energy produced by burning gasoline actually moves the car, which means eight out of you know 80 cents out of every dollar you spend on gasoline is essentially wasted by the this industrial age technology we're using. And then when you're only, if you want to look at how much of that energy is actually moving, moving the person in the car mm. rather than the, car, the yeah. car itself, now only about 1% of what we spend uh, on gasoline is actually physically, is actually used to move the person inside the car. It's so true. And um, then all of a sudden Tesla comes around and they, you know, invent these electric cars, but and this electric car can go ludicrous speed, and it makes sense because they're lighter, and um, but they also we don't need that much energy to move a car, and to, or to move a person, no. even though and we're, we're wasting eighty percent of the energy, and, and just even just the resources, I guess, you know, oil, but also the the metals and and then shipping these cars around the country, you know, or the world, it's. It really is. So is that what drove you, Edward, to think, okay, I'm going to take on the car. I'm going to take on our cars. I'm going to take on this magnificent, maddening, mysterious world of transportation. Did you only go on, did you only like look at the cars, the automobile world, or did you look at all forms of transportation? Oh, all forms. Actually, the the conceit of of door to door was to to sit in my living room and think, okay, what does it take to keep me and my family moving? And, and functioning in in the uh, modern world, uh, how much transportation does that require? And that's why I said the cars are the least of it. It's it, it, cars are a huge issue, and we could do so much better than we're doing now with the the average vehicle. But I was interested in what it takes to get my my iPhone uh, into my pocket, which it turns out when you think of all the parts and materials in that particular product. You could go to the moon and back with the, with the miles it takes to assemble this globally sourced device. Are you serious? Uh, so, like, like you, you mean yeah. getting getting all the parts to one place, uh, getting all of the 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 basic resources to create the phone to the place, then create those parts, then ship the parts to the one place, then manufacture the phone, then get the phone to you. We have we've just expended an abundance of energy and 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 resource. Oh, it, it's it's huge, and that and that's why the the transportation sector uh, is now the most uh, energy intensive, the most carbon intensive, and and sort of the biggest uh, chunk of our uh, emissions now comes from transportation in terms of both pollutants and carbon. Uh, it's it's only only recently eclipsed uh, power generation as the as the Leader, the dubious distinction of leading those categories. Yeah, but it's because we embed so much transportation in in our profits and what we consume. And and, and uh, I guess that's also that's not just a, a cell phone, but that's every piece everything. of clothing, that's every shoe you wear, that's everything you buy. If you buy a gallon of gasoline in California, that's where I looked at the fuel formula for that. That gallon of gasoline will have traveled uh, through pipeline trucks, ships, and trains approximately 100,000 miles before you drive a, a block with it. Oh, 14 countries, 
14 countries and four states that gallon of gasoline will be sourced from. Uh, from so from from uh, origin in the oil fields of the countries that supply uh, oil to that pump. It's a hundred thousand mile journey. Holy cow! And, and, and so it, we will end up expending more energy to get that gasoline to our cars than um, than that twenty percent that is actually uh, uh, of the gasoline we burn that actually moves the car. <laughs> Yeah. It's mind-boggling. It I is mean, mind-boggling. I, mean, I, I loved working on this book because you see how we live as no civilization in the history of the planet has ever lived because global trade has been around forever. We've always shipped goods around the world, but it was always a measure of um, worth of the product versus the uh, the risk of, of going all that time and distance to move things around. So global shipping was for items or products or commodities that were specific to the location, wine or silk or gems or gold, you can only get it in a few places, so of course you have to ship it. Or <clears throat> or items that can only be grown in certain places like coffee. That's how shipping worked for most of the human civilization's existence. Right. Uh, and now we ship our socks from 12 miles and miles away in our underwear and our pencils things that were never worth <laughs> traveling that great a distance. Yeah. We, we are now embedding fantastic amounts of transportation in these simple products that were always sourced locally until fairly recently. So and that's world-changing. You give an example uh, in your Wired article, your iPhone travels about 500,000 miles total journey to your pocket, um, plus um, then you were talking about fuel is about 100,000 miles Really, and the fuel that traveled 100,000 miles is only going to move me, at the most, 300 miles uh, before I need to refuel. So <laughs> That's another way to look at it. It's very, very, like so we're, we're spending 100,000 to get three. <laughs> but I guess that's the deal, though, with a lot of this, it sounds like, Edward, is we don't we don't see the cost. We don't see – I mean, it's not an efficient model. We're, we're in an upside down – I guess this is why you call it maddening, mysterious – magnificent, but um, it's a weird world. And, and are you just trying to draw a light on the fact that, folks, this is crazy? Well, it is. It's unsustainable, too, uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, I, I, perhaps people uh, listening are wondering, well, why was this – what caused this big shift? Is it yeah. trade deals we've been hearing so much about? Or is it uh, tariffs? Or is it unfair competition? Uh those are minor factors compared to what the big uh, <clears throat> uh, tipping point was, which was the invention of the shipping container. <laughs> it's a big, dumb steel box, right? But it's yeah. a brilliant big, dumb steel box because it changed the way we we ship things from having gangs of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, gangs of longshoremen ponderously loading uh, items into ship holds, like you would, you know, pack a giant trunk of your car with suitcases and cramming <laughs> everything in it. Yeah. Now all our goods, most of them, are packed into these, you know, boxcar-sized containers at the source, orderly, securely. They're locked up so that there's no pilferage anymore because you can't get to the goods to walk off. The, you know, so the pilferage was a huge problem in the old world of shipping. 
Uh, and then everything is loaded efficiently onto ships that used to take days uh, at minimum oh, yeah. to load. Now could be loaded in a matter of hours by a crane and a few uh, uh, helpers on the ground. And it's fantastic to watch this happen. It's an amazing process because these ships are designed with these rails in them, and then you stack the ships on them, they slide into place like, like Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And it's efficiently and that, doing that something. transformed everything. Yeah. And we've, we've now, in, with science and our highest efficiencies, we're now efficiently doing something that's ludicrous. That's like, but it works, you know? Exactly. And it, it, it masks the true cost of it because now we have these fantastic mega ships. 6,000 container ships Holy cow. Uh, serve the entire world. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but these, when you're talking about one ship that contained enough goods to stock about, uh, you know, five Walmart superstores on top. I mean, oh, wow. Think of, think of how big all the yeah. goods in a in Walmart. That's, one ship can, can handle, you know, five or more of those, and the ships keep getting bigger. Unbelievable. No, I said there was 6,000. Here's the, one of the hidden costs. 160 of those ships, just 160, and there's 6,000 of them, um, emit, as they burn this incredibly dirty fuel that they use, they emit more particulates and smog-causing pollutants than all the cars in the world. Holy 160 God. of these ships out-pollute all the cars in the world. And we and we just keep That's them coming. The hidden cost. Yeah. And nobody's responsible for that because it all happens in international waters. Right. So it's not like anybody can get a fine for being polluting. Uh, it's, it doesn't exist legally, and but it does exist physically, and it wreaks terrible uh, damage on our planet. No, absolutely. Uh, let's take a break, Edward. We're speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning. Um, writer and author Edward Humes. Uh, you can go to his website, edwardhumes.com, and we're talking about his book, Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. It's costing us, folks, and there's a lot of hidden costs. In fact, most of the costs are hidden. Sure, you pay $700 for an iPhone, but did you know that it traveled uh, 500,000 miles? All of its parts, all of its basic uh, uh ingredients or the things that make up the iPhone, they've been on a big journey and it's only 700 bucks to you, but it may be impacting us in ways we don't even know about. We'll take a break, come back, continue this uh, intriguing journey into the world of transportation. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show on the show with us today is uh, Pulitzer Prize winning um, uh, journalist and author Edward Humes. His latest book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. He also is the author of the book Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash. And uh, you can find out more on his website, edwardhumes.com. Edward, again, thank you for your time and uh, thanks for enlightening us about the impact really that's going on behind the scenes in our transportation world. Well, you know, it's an important subject. I think we ought to all know what we're, we're getting into when you uh, buy something online or when you uh, make a different product decision. To, uh, but, you know, it's not all bad news. I mean, there's a lot of uh, amazing developments in the transportation world that are 
exciting and, and um, promise a, a kind of a cool future if we choose to take certain paths forward. Yeah. Some of this is uh, gets into some interesting things like um, our own population, only 3% of our population, I guess, uh, in the United States bike to work. Um, and, and it really almost seems like a lot of our uh, a lot of our um, cities they're not necessarily designed very well for biking. You're you're actually sharing the road with uh, other cars. It seems dangerous to some of us that don't do it. But um, you know, there's other countries that can fit bicycles, mopeds, scooters, everything else on the road, and they seem to be doing it fine. Do you, is this data as you get this information out to everybody about transportation and its and its effects on us? Why is it not changing, you know, more people taking other forms of transportation? I think it is changing. I mean, we're seeing a, um, a lot of attention being paid to uh, non-motorized uh, transport in, in many of our cities and, uh, and, and regional areas are, are looking to make it possible to safely mix uh, bikes and pedestrians and uh, other forms of active transportation is the new term of art. Uh, that's, that's been happening uh, in recent years, and uh, it's picking up steam. It's often controversial because um, people who rely on their cars for transportation tend to view it as just another impediment. Oh, no, more bikes on the road <laughs> will slow everything down. Yeah, I don't want to hit and anybody. Into, uh, and you know what? It's... If you do it right, it actually can have the opposite effect. That's the cool thing. There's a lot of myths that, that get in the way of effective um, transportation planning and, and infrastructure building. And we do a lot of things and spend a lot of money on uh, projects to fix traffic cans that don't work, mm. <laughs> you know, like adding lanes to – and this is all part of the bicycle thing. So if you add more lanes to a congested freeway, you think, ah, oh, that's going to make traffic better. But our experience in every state in the country is, in, particularly in um, urban areas, when you add those extra lanes, it doesn't make traffic better. It often makes it worse. It's hmm. you know, that it's like the old Field of Dreams movie. If you build it, they will come. Well, that's how traffic literally works. They do come. It's called induce demand. So we spend billions trying to uh, – the most popular – uh, ribbon-cutting moments where you open up those new lanes and, and expanded roads, and then everybody is scratching their head and wondering a year later why things are even worse than they were before. It's because lanes don't uh, make traffic better. Uh, human behavior makes traffic better. Mm-hmm. When you do things to get people to choose a different time of day to drive or a different route or to take not drive that day because they have a better option, whether it's a bus or a bike or whatever. That's the stuff that fixes traffic. And that's where bike lanes come in. We've seen this in Manhattan where they literally um, took lanes away from cars in incredibly crowded urban environment and put in protected bike lanes. But they also added other bits of infrastructure like pullouts so that when cars are turning left or right, on these busy streets, they don't block the cars behind them, but they have a separate little pocket to slip into before they mm. slow down and make their turn. When you combine that with bike lanes, suddenly, and they know this from looking at the GPS data from um, yellow cabs, which are all over uh, you know, Manhattan, they know that the traffic improved after they took lanes away, but did these engineering uh, tricks to, to make everything flow better, including bicycle traffic. They actually made traffic better. So there's there's ways to do it that benefit everybody and also improve safety. 
safety is a huge thing with the way we uh, engineer our streets and roads. And, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's funny. You would think when you add more to the mix, bicycles and, and uh, pedestrians, it would make things less safe. But when you do it right, it makes things much more safe. Hmm. And it, I mean, that, there's hope there. And I, I guess, where do you see this going in the future? Um, I mean, we've had people on the show before talking about the fact just just what it's going to take to start delivering everyone's packages as more and more people move to online and the congestion in cities of delivery trucks, um, how com- complicated that can be in certain cities. Um, where do you see this going? Because this seems like it's going to be more and more and uh, chaos and confusion could reign, but there's also hope. There is hope. Well, we need to do a couple things. You know that 50% of the cars on the on the road during rush hours are not people going to work. They're doing other things that could be um, uh, they're optional trips that could happen at other times of day. If you can induce even a portion of those people to uh, drive at a different time of day, uh, traffic would get immensely better. Uh, one way to do that that's highly controversial is called congestion pricing, which is the four-letter word politicians hate to say, T-O-L-L, toll. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like the dirty word. Uh, but it actually works. They've done it in cities like London, and um, it doesn't cure everything, but it reduces congestion in a way that uh, other things don't. So finding uh, carrots and sticks to get people to change that behavior, that's one thing. When I was a kid in the 1960s, about half of school children walked their bike to school. Right. Today it's 13%. 13%. What's changed? All those schools are basically still in the same places. So we have become the nation that hates to walk. Um, we walk less than any uh, developed country, and certainly undeveloped country in the world. Literally, they, they've measured this. And, um, you know, no wonder we have an obesity problem. Exactly. We. we Half the trips we take on any given day are three miles or less, and yet uh, over 80% of them are done in a car. Now, that's another behavior we should find ways to change, and one way is to sort of push people back to walking their kids to school in the morning instead of driving them at, at six blocks, you know, yeah. or riding a bike or whatever. Right. That's a start. I mean, little things like that. And then big, the big thing on the horizon is the future of driverless cars, which will has, has a very great potential to transform both goods movement and, and people movement in a way that would be more efficient, safer. Uh, uh, if, if you combine automation with ride sharing, suddenly you get cars, instead of being parked 94% of their existence, which is what the average car does, you could have them have shared autonomous vehicles and you summon the car you need for the trip you're taking with a tap on your smartphone uh, and it takes you where you want to go. It drops you off. It doesn't park. Instead, it goes off to take somebody else somewhere else. That's great. And uh, that cities right now, 33% of the average uh, (laughs) uh, um, central portion of cities are devoted to parking. Half the congestion in its inner urban cores are people looking for parking. <laughs> <It's>, yeah. <laughs> when you think about it. Eliminate parking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What if that all goes away? And, and you know, the three biggest causes of uh, death and injury on our roads are speeding, 
drinking, and distraction. Well, <laughs> robots don't drink. They don't get distracted. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the Google car where I rode around in it, uh, the, the driverless technology, one, one that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, it's the only car on the street following the speed limit, I can assure you. <laughs> well, and what if they <laughs> could the all... The yeah. engine's been, have been rear-ended by impatient drivers. So. Yeah, and if all cars are communicating with each other, and, I mean, yeah, I mean, imagine eliminating the accidents and death on the road. I mean, there's so many benefits going forward. Do you sense... How do you sense that Americans will go forward with this future, Um it seems like we might do it kicking and screaming and, you know, screaming our rights are being infringed upon because now you're increasing taxes and tolls and you're not letting me drive when I want to. How do you, how do you sense that will go? People will do uh, the things that benefit them the most. And we are, we are in love with our cars, but we're not in love with our traffic. Hmm. And we're not in love with how much it costs. I mean, a, a car is the second biggest expense a family has to deal with uh, 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 after their housing. And if you think about it, well, we, you know, if you buy a house, your hope is that's a great investment and it'll be worth more someday. Is your car a great investment that's going to be worth more every day? No. The minute you drive it off the lot, it's worth less than you, you're paying for it. Yeah. It's a terrible investment. We do it because we have to. But if there's I I truly believe that our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren are going to say how absurd it was that we spent all this money and time driving our own cars, you know. But what, driving won't go away. Right. People who do it for pleasure, it'll be like horseback riding. That I mean, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, horse, horses were our primary means of transportation at a, at a personal level. Our cities were full of them, and, and it was a problem. Uh, and uh, some people were very upset about a transition to motor vehicles. Uh, a lot of people lost jobs. Think of all the farriers and smiths and horse breeders and everything else that lost their livelihood because of the cars. But we're going to see a difficult transition like that in the future. But car driving will become recreation the way horseback riding is today and, and safe places where they're not you know, crashing into another. We're experiencing the equivalent of four passenger airliner crashes a week. That's how many people die on our roads in America. Four airliners a week. Would we tolerate that for for more than, you know, a week? No, of course not. Uh, And yet we've normalized ourselves to that level of carnage. Uh, A death every 15 minutes on our U.S. roads and streets. And that also goes away if we if we do the deployment of driverless vehicles the right way. Yeah. Well, the book is Door to Door, The Magnificent, Maddening, Mysterious World of Transportation. And Edwards, we can see we that you took your top-notch riding. And I just love how, I mean, I never thought of it as four airlines going down. But when you think of it that way, no, we don't tolerate that. And we don't. None of us want to go back to the horse days, um, just like in 30, 40, 50 years from now, we may not want to go back to the car days. Edward, we appreciate you. Keep up your great work, your great writing. Uh, the website is edwardhumes.com, where you can get more information about all of his books and all of his writing. 
We will take a break, my friends. Remember, it's up to us. The more we know, the more we can change things and understand best how to utilize our lives and our resources. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Uh, Again, those numbers are staggering. To get your uh, iPhone to your house, to have it, to have purchased it, 500,000 miles. The parts, the pieces, the battery, the plastic, everything that makes up that iPhone traveled 500,000 miles just to get to you. That is a lot of transportation, a lot of pollution, a lot of fuel used. And it seems like we live uh, more and more in a world where we take a lot of stuff for granted. We don't think about the costs that get there. Um, There was an interesting study, a technology-based study about um, college students. And, you know, we always talk about security and safety on the show Um, Nearly three quarters of people, 74 percent of the people in the U.S. believe it's very important to be in control of who can get information about them to protect their own their own information. Right. Sixty percent say they would never feel comfortable sharing their email contacts with others. However, in a study they did at a college, a university, um, college students, 98 percent of those gave away their friends emails when promised free pizza. Oh, sure. Yeah. You want Jeff's email? Yeah. Here it is. You want his phone number, his home phone? Here it is. Now give me a free pizza. So if we give uh, a free pizza, the recent study from 3,100 Massachusetts MIT students um, published in the National Bureau of Economic Research found you'll pretty much give anything for a piece of pizza. Isn't that crazy? So we don't necessarily know what's going in the phones. We don't know all the costs that are associated. We don't know the lives that are being impacted. And we just go buy a $700 iPhone. And, yeah, you want my most personal information of all of my friends? Here you go. 94% would do it for a piece of pizza. Just give me the pizza. 12% of Internet users use any kind of password manager uh, like LastPass or iPassword. Only 12%. Roughly two-thirds of respondents say instead they rely on memorizing easy passwords like 123456, or they use the password password, the old uh, fallback password, password. So, um, folks, we got to get more real about our lives. We've got to get more intentional. Maybe ask a few more questions. Understand a little bit more. Is it worth buying socks that had to travel... 50,000 miles to be made and to get to you? What, we can't get socks in our neighborhood? Come on! Anyway, crazy stuff, but uh, it's our lives. Let's take it back and start becoming more informed in how we live and how we protect ourselves. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.